The Gods of Mars, by Edgar Rice Burroughs, proudly presented by BooksOnPodcast.com, converted to an audiobook by Jason Edward Schiffman. Chapter 8. The Depths of Amin. Now I realized why the black pirate had kept me engrossed with his strange tale. For miles he had sensed the approach of succor, and but for that single tell-tale glance the battleship would have been directly above us in another moment, and the boarding party which was doubtless even now swinging in their harness from the ship's keel, would have swarmed our deck, placing my rising hope of escape in sudden and total eclipse. I was too old a hand in aerial warfare to be at a loss now for the right maneuver. Simultaneously I reversed the engines and dropped the little vessel a sheer hundred feet. Above my head I could see the dangling forms of the boarding party as the battleship raced over us. Then I rose at a sharp angle, throwing my speed lever to its last notch. Like a bolt from a crossbow my splendid craft shot its steel prow straight at the whirring propellers of the giant above us. If I could but touch them the huge bulk would be disabled for hours and escape once more possible. At the same instant the sun shot above the horizon, disclosing a hundred grim, black faces peering over the stern of the battleship upon us. At sight of us a shout of rage went up from a hundred throats. Orders were shouted, but it was too late to save the giant propellers, and with a crash we rammed them. Instantly with the shock of impact I reversed my engine, but my prow was wedged in the hole it had made in the battleship's stern. Only a second I hung there before tearing away, but that second was amply long to swarm my deck with black devils. There was no fight. In the first place there was no room to fight. We were simply submerged by numbers. Then as swords menaced me a command from Xodar stayed the hands of his fellows. Secure them, he said, but do not injure them. Several of the pirates already had released Xodar. He now personally attended to my disarming and saw that I was properly bound. At least he thought that the binding was secure. It would have been had I been a Martian, but I had to smile at the puny strands that confined my wrists. When the time came I could snap them as they had been cotton string. The girl they bound also, and then they fastened us together. In the meantime they had brought our craft alongside the disabled battleship, and soon we were transported to the latter's deck. Fully a thousand black men manned the great engine of destruction. Her decks were crowded with them as they pressed forward as far as discipline would permit to get a glimpse of their captives. The girl's beauty elicited many brutal comments and vulgar jests. It was evident that these self-thought supermen were far inferior to the red men of Barsoom in refinement and in chivalry. My close-cropped black hair and thin complexion were the subjects of much comment. Weng Sadar told his fellow nobles of my fighting ability and strange origin they crowded about me with numerous questions. The fact that I wore the harness and metal of a thun who had been killed by a member of my party convinced them that I was an enemy of their hereditary foes, and placed me on a better footing in their estimation. Without exception the blacks were handsome men, and well built. 
the officers were conspicuous through the wondrous magnificence of their resplendent trappings. Many harnesses were so encrusted with gold, platinum, silver and precious stones as to entirely hide the leather beneath. The harness of the commanding officer was a solid mass of diamonds. Against the ebony background of his skin they blazed out with a peculiarly accentuated effulgence. The whole scene was enchanting. The handsome men. The barbaric splendor of the accoutrements. The polished skeel wood of the deck. The gloriously grained serapis of the cabins, inlaid with priceless jewels and precious metals in intricate and beautiful design. The burnished gold of handrails the shining metal of the guns. Fedor and I were taken below decks, where, still fast bound, we were thrown into a small compartment which contains a single porthole. As our escort left us they barred the door behind them. We could hear the men working on the broken propellers, and from the porthole we could see that the vessel was drifting lazily toward the south. For some time neither of us spoke. Each was occupied with his own thoughts. For my part I was wondering as to the fate of Tars Tarkas and the girl, Thavia. Even if they succeeded in eluding pursuit they must eventually fall into the hands of either red men or green, and as fugitives from the valley door they could look for but little else than a swift and terrible death. How I wished that I might have accompanied them. It seemed to me that I could not fail to impress upon the intelligent red men of Barsoom the wicked deception that a cruel and senseless superstition had foisted upon them. Tardushmas would believe me. Of that I was positive. And that he would have the courage of his convictions my knowledge of his character assured me. Deja Torres would believe me. Not a doubt as to that entered my head. Then there were a thousand of my red and green warrior friends whom I knew would face eternal damnation gladly for my sake. Like Tars Tarkas, where I led they would follow. My only danger lay in that should I ever escape the black pirates it might be to fall into the hands of unfriendly red or green men. Then it would mean short shrift for me. Well, there seemed little to worry about on that score for the likelihood of my ever escaping the blacks was extremely remote. The girl and I were linked together by a rope which permitted us to move only about three or four feet from each other. When we had entered the compartment we had seated ourselves upon a low bench beneath the porthole. The bench was the only furniture of the room. It was of serapis wood. The floor, ceiling and walls were of carborundum aluminum, a light impenetrable composition extensively utilized in the construction of Martian fighting ships. As I had sat meditating upon the future my eyes had been riveted upon the porthole which was just level with them as I sat. Suddenly I looked toward Fedor. She was regarding me with a strange expression I had not before seen upon her face. She was very beautiful then. Instantly her white lids veiled her eyes, and I thought I discovered a delicate flush tinging her cheek. Evidently she was embarrassed at having been detected in the act of staring at a lesser creature, I thought. Do you find the study of the lower orders interesting I asked, laughing. She looked up again with a nervous but relieved little laugh. Oh very, she said, 
especially when they have such excellent profiles. It was my turn to flush, but I did not. I felt that she was poking fun at me, and I admired a brave heart that could look for humor on the road to death, and so I laughed with her. Do you know where we are going, she said. To solve the mystery of the eternal hereafter, I imagine, I replied. I am going to a worse fate than that, she said, with a little shudder. What do you mean I can only guess, she replied, since Nothan Damsel of all the millions that have been stolen away by black pirates during the ages they have raided our domains has ever returned to narrator experiences among them. That they never take a man prisoner lends strength to the belief that the fate of the girls they steal is worse than death. Is it not a just retribution I could not help but ask? What do you mean do not the Thans themselves do likewise with the poor creatures who take the voluntary pilgrimage down the river of mystery was not Thavia for fifteen years a plaything and a slave is it less than just that you should suffer as you have caused others to suffer you do not understand, she replied. We Thans are a holy race. It is an honor to a lesser creature to be a slave among us. Did we not occasionally save a few of the lower orders that stupidly float down an unknown river to an unknown end all will become the prey of the plant men and the apes? But do you not by every means encourage the superstition among those of the outside world I argued? That is the wickedest of your deeds. Can you tell me why you foster the cruel deception all life on Basum, she said is created solely for the support of the race of Thans. How else could we live did the outer world not furnish our labor and our food think you that a Than would demean himself by labor it is true then that you eat human flesh I asked in horror. She looked at me in pitying commiseration for my ignorance. Truly we eat the flesh of the lower orders. Do not you also the flesh of beasts, yes, I replied but not the flesh of man. As man may eat of the flesh of beasts, so may gods eat of the flesh of man. The holy thans are the gods of Basum. I was disgusted and I imagine that I showed it. You are an unbeliever now, she continued gently, but should we be fortunate enough to escape the clutches of the black pirates and come again to the court of Matai Shang I think that we shall find an argument to convince you of the error of your ways. And dash, she hesitated, perhaps we shall find a way to keep you as, as one of us. Again her eyes dropped to the floor, and a faint color suffused her cheek. I could not understand her meaning. Nor did I for a long time. Deja Torres was wont to say that in some things I was a veritable simpleton, and I guessed that she was right. I fear that I would ill requite your father's hospitality, I answered since the first thing that I should do were I them would be to set an armed guard at the mouth of the river ice to escort the poor deluded voyagers back to the outer world. Also should I devote my life to the extermination of the hideous plant men and their horrible companions, the great white apes. She looked at me really horror-struck. No, no, she cried. You must not say such terribly sacrilegious things you must not even think them. Should they ever guess that you entertain such frightful thoughts, should we chance to regain the temples of the Thans, they would mete out a frightful death to you. 
Not even my Maya Gemchi flushed and started over. Not even I could save you. I said no more. Evidently it was useless. She was even more steeped in superstition than the Martians of the outer world. They only worshipped a beautiful hope for a life of love and peace and happiness in the hereafter. The Thans worshipped the hideous plant men and the apes, or at least they reverenced them as the abodes of the departed spirits of their own dead. At this point the door of our prison opened to admit Xadar. He smiled pleasantly at me, and when he smiled his expression was kindly anything but cruel or vindictive. Since you cannot escape under any circumstances, he said, I cannot see the necessity for keeping you confined below. I will cut your bonds and you may come on deck. You will witness something very interesting, and as you never shall return to the outer world it will do no harm to permit you to see it. You will see what no other than the firstborn and their slaves know the existence of the subterranean entrance to the holy land, to the real heaven of Barsoom. It will be an excellent lesson for this daughter of the Thans, he added, for she shall see the temple of issues, and issues, perchance, shall embrace her. Fedor said when Tai. What blasphemy is this, dog of a pirate, she cried. Issues would wipe out your entire breed and you ever came within sight of her temple. You have much to learn, Thon, replied Xadar, with an ugly smile, nor do I envy you the manner in which you will learn it. As we came on deck I saw to my surprise that the vessel was passing over a great field of snow and ice. As far as the eye could reach in any direction naught else was visible. There could be but one solution to the mystery. We were above the South Polar Ice Cap. Only at the poles of Mars is there ice or snow upon the planet. No sign of life appeared below us. Evidently we were too far south even for the great fur-bearing animals which the Martians so delight in hunting. Xadar was at my side as I stood looking out over the ship's rail. What course I asked him? A little west of south, he replied. You will see the Otz Valley directly. We shall skirt it for a few hundred miles. The Otz Valley, I exclaimed. But, man, is not there where lie the domains of the Thans from which I but just escaped? Yes, answered Xadar. You crossed this ice field last night in the long chase that you led us. The Otz Valley lies in a mighty depression at the South Pole. It is sunk thousands of feet below the level of the surrounding country, like a great round bowl. A hundred miles from its northern boundary rise the Otz Mountains which circle the inner valley of Dor, in the exact center of which lies the lost Sea of Gerus. On the shore of the sea stands the golden temple of issues in the land of the firstborn. It is there that we are bound. As I looked I commenced to realize why it was that in all the ages only one had escaped from the valley door. My only wonder was that even the one had been successful. To cross this frozen, wind-swept waste of bleak ice alone and on foot would be impossible. Only by airboat could the journey be made. I finished aloud. It was thus that one did escape the Thans in bygone times. But none has ever escaped the firstborn, says Xadar, with a touch of pride in his voice.
we had now reached the southernmost extremity of the great ice barrier. It ended abruptly in a sheer wall thousands of feet high at the base of which stretched a level valley, broken here and there by low rolling hills and little clumps of forest, and with tiny rivers formed by the melting of the ice barrier at its base. Once we passed far above what seemed to be a deep canyon-like rift stretching from the ice wall on the north across the valley as far as the eye could reach. That is the bed of the river ice, said Xadar. It runs far beneath the ice field, and below the level of the valleyots, but its canyon is open here. Presently I described what I took to be a village, and pointing it out to Xadar asked him what it might be. It is a village of lost souls, he answered, laughing. This trip between the ice barrier and the mountains is considered neutral ground. Some turn off from their voluntary pilgrimage down the ice, and, scaling the awful walls of its canyon below us, stop in the valley. Also a slave now and then escapes from the thins and makes his way hither. They do not attempt to recapture such, since there is no escape from this outer valley, and as a matter of fact they fear the patrolling cruisers of the firstborn too much to venture from their own domains. The poor creatures of this outer valley are not molested by us since they have nothing that we desire, nor are they numerically strong enough to give us an interesting fight so we too leave them alone. There are several villages of them but they have increased in numbers but little in many years since they are always warring among themselves. Now we swung a little north of west, leaving the valley of lost souls, and shortly I discerned over our starboard bow what appeared to be a black mountain rising from the desolate waste of ice. It was not high and seemed to have a flat top. Xadar had left us to attend to some duty on the vessel, and Fedor and I stood alone beside the rail. The girl had not once spoken since we had been brought to the deck. Is what he has been telling me true I asked her. In part, yes, she answered. That about the outer valley is true, but what he says of the location of the temple of issues in the center of his country is false. If it is not false she hesitated. Oh it cannot be true, it cannot be true. For if it were true then for countless ages have my people gone to torture and ignominious death at the hands of their cruel enemies, instead of to the beautiful life eternal that we have been taught to believe issues holds for us. As the lesser Barsumians of the outer world have been lured by you to the terrible valley door, so may it be that the Thuns themselves have been lured by the firstborn to an equally horrid fate, I suggested. It would be a stern and awful retribution, Fedor, but a just one. I cannot believe it, she said. We shall see, I answered, and then we fell silent again for we were rapidly approaching the Black Mountains, which in some indefinable way seemed linked with the answer to our problem. As we neared the dark, truncated cone the vessel's speed was diminished until we barely moved. Then we topped the crest of the mountain and below us I saw yawning the mouth of a huge circular well, the bottom of which was lost in inky blackness. The diameter of this enormous pit was fully a thousand feet. The walls were smooth and appeared to be composed of a black, basaltic rock. 
For a moment the vessel hovered motionless directly above the center of the gaping void, then slowly she began to settle into the blackism. Lower and lower she sank until as darkness enveloped us her lights were thrown on and in the dim halo of her own radiance the monster battleship dropped on and on down into what seemed to me must be the very bowels of Barsoom. For quite half an hour we descended and then the shaft terminated abruptly in the dome of a mighty subterranean world. Below us rose and fell the billows of a buried sea. A phosphorescent radiance illuminated the scene. Thousands of ships dotted the bosom of the ocean. Little islands rose here and there to support the strange and colorless vegetation of this strange world. Slowly and with majestic grace the battleship dropped until she rested on the water. Her great propellers had been drawn and housed during our descent of the shaft and in their place had been run out the smaller but more powerful water propellers. As these commenced to revolve the ship took up its journey once more, riding the new element as buoyantly and as safely as she had the air. Fedor and I were dumbfounded. Neither had either heard or dreamed that such a world existed beneath the surface of Barsoom. Nearly all the vessels we saw were warcraft. There were a few lighters and barges, but none of the great merchantmen such as ply the upper air between the cities of the outer world. Here is the harbor of the navy of the firstborn, said a voice behind us, and turning we saw Xadar watching us with an amused smile on his lips. This sea, he continued is larger than Kyrus. It receives the waters of the lesser sea above it. To keep it from filling above a certain level we have four great pumping stations that force the oversupply back into the reservoirs far north from which the red men draw the water which irrigates their farmlands. A new light burst on me with this explanation. The red men had always considered it a miracle that caused great columns of water to spurt from the solid rock of their reservoir sides to increase the supply of the precious liquid which is so scarce in the outer world of Mars. Never had their learned men been able to fathom the secret of the source of this enormous volume of water. As ages passed they had simply come to accept it as a matter of course and ceased to question its origin. We passed several islands on which were strangely shaped circular buildings, apparently roofless, and pierced midway between the ground and their tops with small, heavily barred windows. They bore the earmarks of prisons, which were further accentuated by the armed guards who squatted on low benches without, or patrolled the short beach lines. Few of these islets contained over an acre of ground but presently we sighted a much larger one directly ahead. This proved to be our destination, and the great ship was soon made fast against the steep shore. Xadar signaled us to follow him and with a half dozen officers and men we left the battleship and approached a large oval structure a couple of hundred yards from the shore. You shall soon see issues, said Xadar to Fedor. The few prisoners we take are presented to her. Occasionally she selects slaves from among them to replenish the ranks of her handmaidens. None serves issues above a single year, and there was a grim smile on the black slips that lent a cruel and sinister meaning to his simple statement. Fedor, though loath to believe that issues was allied to such as these, 
had commenced to entertain doubts and fears. She clung very closely to me, no longer the proud daughter of the master of life and death upon Basum, but a young and frightened girl in the power of relentless enemies. The building which we now entered was entirely roofless. In its center was a long tank of water, set below the level of the floor like the swimming pool of a natatorium. Near one side of the pool floated an odd-looking black object. Whether it were some strange monster of these buried waters, or a queer raft, I could not at once perceive. We were soon to know, however, for as we reached the edge of the pool directly above the thing, Xadar cried out a few words in a strange tongue. Immediately a hatch cover was raised from the surface of the object, and a black seaman sprang from the bowels of the strange craft. Xadar addressed the seaman. Transmit to your officer, he said, the commands of Data Xadar. Say to him that Data Xadar, with officers and men, escorting two prisoners, would be transported to the gardens of issues beside the Golden Temple. Blessed be the shell of thy first ancestor, most noble Data, replied the man. It shall be done even as thou sayest, and raising both hands, palms backward, above his head after the manner of salute which is common to all races of Barsoom, he disappeared once more into the entrails of his ship. A moment later an officer resplendent in the gorgeous trappings of his rank appeared on deck and welcomed Xadar to the vessel, and in the latter's wake we filed aboard and below. The cabin in which we found ourselves extended entirely across the ship, having portholes on either side below the water line. No sooner were all below than a number of commands were given, in accordance with which the hatch was closed and secured, and the vessel commenced to vibrate to the rhythmic purr of its machinery. Where can we be going in such a tiny pool of water? asked Fedor. Not up, I replied, for I noticed particularly that while the building is roofless it is covered with a strong metal grating. Then where she asked again. From the appearance of the craft I judge we are going down, I replied. Fed or shuddered. For such long ages have the waters of Barsoom's seas been a thing of tradition only that even this daughter of the Thans, born as she had been within sight of Mars' only remaining sea, had the same terror of deep water as is a common attribute of all Martians. Presently the sensation of sinking became very apparent. We were going down swiftly. Now we could hear the water rushing past the portholes, and in the dim light that filtered through them to the water beyond the swirling eddies were plainly visible. Fair door grasped my arm. Save me she whispered. Save me and your every wish shall be granted. Anything within the power of the holy thans to give will be yours. Fair door she stumbled a little here, and then in a very low voice, Fedor already is yours. I felt very sorry for the poor child, and placed my hand over hers where it rested on my arm. I presume my motive was misunderstood, for with a swift glance about the apartment to assure herself that we were alone, she threw both her arms about my neck and dragged my face down to hers. Chapter 9 Issues, Goddess of Life Eternal the confession of love which the girl's fright had wrung from her touched me deeply. But it humiliated me as well, 
since I felt that in some thoughtless word or act I had given her reason to believe that I reciprocated her affection. Never have I been much of a lady's man, being more concerned with fighting and kindred arts which have ever seemed to me more befitting a man than mooning over a scented glove for sizes too small for him, or kissing a dead flower that has begun to smell like a cabbage. So I was quite at a loss as to what to do or say. A thousand times rather face the wild hordes of the Dead Sea bottoms than meet the eyes of this beautiful young girl and tell her the things that I must tell her. But there was nothing else to be done, and so I did it. Very clumsily too, I fear. Gently I unclasped her hands from about my neck, and still holding them in mine I told her the story of my love for Deja Torres that of all the women of two worlds that I had known and admired during my long life she alone had I loved. The tale did not seem to please her. Like a tigress she sprang, panting, to her feet. Her beautiful face was distorted in an expression of horrible malevolence. Her eyes fairly blazed into mine. Dog, she hissed. Dog of a blasphemer think you that Fedor, daughter of Matishang, supplicate she commands. What to her is your puny outer world passion for the vile creature you chose in your other life Fedor has glorified you with her love, and you have spurned her. Ten thousand unthinkably atrocious deaths could not atone for the affront that you have put upon me. The thing that you call Deja Torres shall die the most horrible of them all. You have sealed the warrant for her doom and you you shall be the meanest slave in the service of the goddess you have attempted to humiliate. Tortures and ignominies shall be heaped upon you until you grovel at my feet asking the boon of death. In my gracious generosity I shall at length grant your prayer, and from the high balcony of the golden cliffs I shall watch the great white apes tear you asunder. She had it all fixed up. The whole lovely program from start to finish. It amazed me to think that one so divinely beautiful could at the same time be so fiendishly vindictive. It occurred to me, however, that she had overlooked one little factor in her revenge, and so, without any intent to add to her discomfiture, but rather to permit her to rearrange her plans along more practical lines, I pointed to the nearest porthole. Evidently she had entirely forgotten her surroundings and her present circumstances, for a single glance at the dark, swirling waters without center crumpled upon a low bench, where with her face buried in her arms she sobbed more like a very unhappy little girl than a proud and all-powerful goddess. Down, down we continued to sink until the heavy glass of the portholes became noticeably warm from the heat of the water without. Evidently we were very far beneath the surface crust of Mars. Presently our downward motion ceased, and I could hear the propellers swirling through the water at our stern and forcing us ahead at high speed. It was very dark down there, but the light from our portholes, and the reflection from what must have been a powerful searchlight on the submarine's nose showed that we were forging through a narrow passage, rock-lined, and tube-like. After a few minutes the propellers ceased their whirring. We came to a full stop, and then commenced to rise swiftly toward the surface. Soon the light from without increased and we came to a stop. 
Xadar entered the cabin with his men. Come, he said, and we followed him through the hatchway which had been opened by one of the seamen. We found ourselves in a small subterranean vault, in the center of which was the pool in which lay our submarine, floating as we had first seen her with only her black back showing. Around the edge of the pool was a level platform, and then the walls of the cave rose perpendicularly for a few feet to arch toward the center of the low roof. The walls about the ledge were pierced with a number of entrances to dimly lighted passageways. Toward one of these our captors led us, and after a short walk halted before a steel cage which lay at the bottom of a shaft rising above us as far as one could see. The cage proved to be one of the common types of elevator cars that I had seen in other parts of Barsoom. They are operated by means of enormous magnets which are suspended at the top of the shaft. By an electrical device the volume of magnetism generated is regulated and the speed of the car varied. In long stretches they move at a sickening speed, especially on the upward trip, since the small force of gravity inherent to Mars results in very little opposition to the powerful force above. Scarcely had the door of the car closed behind us than we were slowing up to stop at the landing above, so rapid was our ascent of the long shaft. When we emerged from the little building which houses the upper terminus of the elevator, we found ourselves in the midst of a veritable fairyland of beauty. The combined languages of Earthmen hold no words to convey to the mind the gorgeous beauties of the scene. One may speak of scarlet sward and ivory-stemmed trees decked with brilliant purple blooms, of winding walks paved with crushed rubies, with emerald, with turquoise, even with diamonds themselves, of a magnificent temple of burnished gold, hand-draught with marvelous designs. But where are the words to describe the glorious colors that are unknown to earthly eyes where the mind or the imagination that can grasp the gorgeous scintillations of unheard of rays as they emanate from the thousand nameless jewels of Barsoom even my eyes, for long years accustomed to the barbaric splendors of a Marsham Jeddak's court, were amazed at the glory of the scene. Fedor's eyes were wide in amazement. The Temple of Issues, she whispered, half to herself. Xadar watched us with his grim smile, partly of amusement and partly malicious gloating. The gardens swarmed with brilliantly trapped black men and women. Among them moved red and white females serving their every want. The places of the outer world and the temples of the Thunds had been robbed of their princesses and goddesses that the blacks might have their slaves. Through this scene we moved toward the temple. At the main entrance we were halted by a cordon of armed guards. Xadar spoke a few words to an officer who came forward to question us. Together they entered the temple, where they remained for some time. When they returned it was to announce that Issues desired to look upon the daughter of Matashang, and the strange creature from another world who had been a prince of Helium. Slowly we moved through endless corridors of unthinkable beauty, through magnificent apartments, and noble halls. At length we were halted in a spacious chamber in the center of the temple. One of the officers who had accompanied us advanced to a large door in the further end of the chamber. 
Here he must have made some sort of signal for immediately the door opened and another richly trapped courtier emerged. We were then led up to the door, where we were directed to get down on our hands and knees with our backs toward the room we were to enter. The doors were swung open and after being cautioned not to turn our heads under penalty of instant death we were commanded to back into the presence of issues. Never have I been in so humiliating a position in my life, and only my love for Deja Torres and the hope which still clung to me that I might again see her kept me from rising to face the goddess of the firstborn and go down to my death like a gentleman, facing my foes and with their blood mingling with mine. After we had crawled in this disgusting fashion for a matter of a couple of hundred feet we were halted by our escort. Let them rise said a voice behind us. A thin, wavering voice, yet one that had evidently been accustomed to command for many years. Rise, said our escort, but do not face toward issues. The woman pleases me, said the thin, wavering voice again after a few moments of silence. She shall serve me the allotted time. The man you may return to the Isle of Shador which lies against the northern shore of the Sea of Amin. Let the woman turn and look upon issues, knowing that those of the lower orders who gaze upon the holy vision of her radiant face survive the blinding glory but a single year. I watched Fedor from the corner of my eye. She paled to a ghastly hue. Slowly, very slowly she turned as though drawn by some invisible yet irresistible force. She was standing quite close to me, so close that her bare arm touched mine as she finally faced issues, goddess of life eternal. I could not see the girl's face as her eyes rested for the first time on the supreme deity of Mars, but felt the shudder that ran through her in the trembling flesh of the arm that touched mine. It must be dazzling loveliness indeed, thought I, to cause such emotion in the breast of so radiant a beauty as Fedor, daughter of Matishang. Let the woman remain. Remove the man. Go. Thus spoke issues, and the heavy hand of the officer fell upon my shoulder. In accordance with his instructions I dropped to my hands and knees once more and crawled from the presence. It had been my first audience with deity but I am free to confess that I was not greatly impressed other than with the ridiculous figure I cut scrambling about on my marrow bones. Once without the chamber the doors closed behind us and I was bid to rise. Xodar joined me and together we slowly retraced our steps toward the gardens. You spared my life when you easily might have taken it, he said after we had proceeded some little way in silence and I would aid you if I might. I can help to make your life here more bearable, but your fate is inevitable. You may never hope to return to the outer world. What will be my fate I asked? That will depend largely upon issues. So long as she does not send for you and reveal her face to you, you may live on for years in as mild a form of bondage as I can arrange for you. Why should she send for me I asked. The men of the lower orders she often uses for various purposes of amusement. Such a fighter as you, for example, would render fine sport in the monthly rites of the temple. There are men pitted against men, 
and against beasts for the edification of issues and the replenishment of her larder. She eats human flesh I asked. Not in horror, however, for since my recently acquired knowledge of the holy things I was prepared for anything in this still less accessible heaven, where all was evidently dictated by a single omnipotence. Where ages of narrow fanaticism and self-worship had eradicated all the broader humanitarian instincts that the race might once have possessed. They were a people drunk with power and success, looking upon the other inhabitants of Mars as we look upon the beasts of the field and the forest. Why then should they not eat to the flesh of the lower orders whose lives and characters they no more understood than do we the inmost thoughts and sensibilities of the cattle we slaughter for our earthly tables? She eats only the flesh of the best bread of the holy thons and the red Barsumians. The flesh of the others goes to our boards. The animals are eaten by the slaves. She also eats other dainties. I did not understand then that there lay any special significance in his reference to other dainties. I thought the limit of ghoulishness already had been reached in the recitation of Issue's menu. I still had much to learn as to the depths of cruelty and bestiality to which omnipotence may drag its possessor. We had about reached the last of the many chambers and corridors which led to the gardens when an officer overtook us. Issues would look again upon this man, he said. The girl has told her that he is of wondrous beauty and of such prowess that alone he slew seven of the firstborn, and with his bare hands took Sadar captive, binding him with his own harness. Sadar looked uncomfortable. Evidently he did not relish the thought that Issues had learned of his inglorious defeat. Without a word he turned and we followed the officer once again to the closed doors before the audience chamber of issues, goddess of life eternal. Here the ceremony of entrance was repeated. Again issues bid me rise. For several minutes all was silent as the tomb. The eyes of deity were appraising me. Presently the thin wavering voice broke the stillness repeating in a sing-song drone the words which for countless ages had sealed the doom of numberless victims. Let the man turn and look upon issues, knowing that those of the lower orders who gaze upon the holy vision of her radiant face survive the blinding glory but a single year. I turned as I had been bid, expecting such a treat as only the revealment of divine glory to mortal eyes might produce. What I saw was a solid phalanx of armed men between myself and a dais supporting a great bench of carved serapus wood. On this bench, all thrown, squatted a female black. She was evidently very old. Not a hair remained upon her wrinkled skull. With the exception of two yellow fangs she was entirely toothless. On either side of her thin, Hawk-like nose her eyes burned from the depths of horribly sunken sockets. The skin of her face was seamed and creased with a million deep-cut furrows. Her body was as wrinkled as her face, and as repulsive. Emaciated arms and legs attached to a torso which seemed to be mostly distorted abdomen completed the holy vision of her radiant beauty. Surrounding her were a number of female slaves, among them Fedor, white and trembling. This is the man who slew seven of the firstborn and, bare-handed, 
bound Datuk Sadar with his own highness asked issues. Most glorious vision of divine loveliness, it is, replied the officer who stood at my side. Produce Datuk Sadar, she commanded. Sadar was brought from the adjoining room. Issues glared at him, a baleful light in her hideous eyes. And such as you are a dater of the firstborn she squealed. For the disgrace you have brought upon the immortal race you shall be degraded to a rank below the lowest. No longer be you a dater, but forevermore a slave of slaves, to fetch and carry for the lower orders that serve in the gardens of issues. Remove his harness. Cowards and slaves wear no trappings. Xadar stood stiffly erect. Not a muscle twitched, nor a tremor shook his giant frame as a soldier of the guard roughly stripped his gorgeous trappings from him. Begone, screamed the infuriated little old woman. Begone, but instead of the light of the gardens of issues let you serve as a slave of this slave who conquered you in the prison on the Isle of Shador in the Sea of Amin. Take him away out of the sight of my divine eyes. Slowly and with high-held head the proud Xadar turned and stalked from the chamber. Issues rose and turned to leave the room by another exit. Turning to me, she said, you shall be returned to Shador for the present. Later Issues will see the manner of your fighting. Go. Then she disappeared, followed by her retinue. Only Fedor lagged behind, and as I started to follow my guard toward the gardens, the girl came running after me. Oh, do not leave me in this terrible place, she begged. Forgive the things I said to you, my prince. I did not mean them. Only take me away with you. Let me share your imprisonment on Shadow. Her words were an almost incoherent volley of thoughts, so rapidly she spoke. You did not understand the honor that I did you. Among the Thans there is no marriage or giving in marriage, as among the lower orders of the outer world. We might have lived together forever in love and happiness. We have both looked upon issues and in a year we die. Let us live that year at least together in what measure of joy remains for the doomed. If it was difficult for me to understand you, Fedor, I replied. Can you not understand that possibly it is equally difficult for you to understand the motives, the customs and the social laws that guide me I do not wish to hurt you, nor to seem to undervalue the honor which you have done me, but the thing you desire may not be. Regardless of the foolish belief of the peoples of the outer world, or of Holython, or Bon firstborn, I am not dead. While I live my heart beats for but one woman the incomparable Dacia Taurus, Princess of Helium. When death overtakes me my heart shall have ceased to beat. But what comes after that I know not. And in that I am as wise as Matai Shang, Master of Life and Death upon Basum. Or Issues, Goddess of Life Eternal. Fedor stood looking at me intently for a moment. No anger showed in her eyes this time only a pathetic expression of hopeless sorrow. I do not understand, she said, and turning walked slowly in the direction of the door through which Issues and her retinue had passed. A moment later she had passed from my sight. Chapter 10. The Prison Isle of Shadow.
In the outer gardens to which the guard now escorted me, I found Xadar surrounded by a crowd of noble blacks. They were reviling and cursing him. The men slapped his face. The woman spat upon him. When I appeared they turned their attentions toward me. Ah, cried one, so this is the creature who overcame the great Sadar barehanded. Let us see how it was done. Let him bind Thurid, suggested a beautiful woman, laughing. Thurid is a noble data. Let Thurid show the dog what it means to face a real man. Yes, Thurid Thurid cried a dozen voices. Here he is now exclaimed another, and turning in the direction indicated I saw a huge black way down with resplendent ornaments and arms advancing with noble and gallant bearing toward us. What now, he cried. What would you have thurid quickly a dozen voices explained. Thurid turned toward Xadar, his eyes narrowing to two nasty slits. Callet he hissed. Ever did I think you carried the heart of a Sorak in your putrid breast. Often have you bested me in the secret councils of issues, but now in the field of war where men are truly gauged your scabby heart hath revealed its source to all the world. Kalat, I spurn you with my foot, and with the words he turned to kick Sadar. My blood was up. For minutes it had been boiling at the cowardly treatment they had been according this once powerful comrade because he had fallen from the favor of issues. I had no love for Xadar, but I cannot stand the sight of cowardly injustice and persecution without seeing red as through a haze of bloody mist, and doing things on the impulse of the moment that I presume I never should do after mature deliberation. I was standing close beside Xadar as Thurid swung his foot for the cowardly kick. The degraded data stood erect and motionless as a carven image. He was prepared to take whatever his former comrades had to offer in the way of insults and reproaches, and take them in manly silence and stoicism. But as Thurid's foot swung so did mine, and I caught him a painful blow upon the shin bone that saved Xadar from this added ignominy. For a moment there was tense silence, then Thurid, with a roar of rage sprang from my throat, just as Xadar had upon the deck of the cruiser. The results were identical. I ducked beneath his outstretched arms, and as he lunged past me planted a terrific right on the side of his jaw. The big fellow spun around like a top, his knees gave beneath him and he crumpled to the ground at my feet. The blacks gazed in astonishment, first at the still form of the proud data lying there in the ruby dust of the pathway, then at me as though they could not believe that such a thing could be. You asked me to bind Thurid, I cried. Behold and then I stooped beside the prostrate form, tore the harness from it, and bound the fellow's arms and legs securely. As you have done to Xadar, now do you likewise to Thurid. Take him before issues, bound in his own harness, that she may see with her own eyes that there be one among you now who is greater than the firstborn. Who are you? whispered the woman who had first suggested that I attempt to bind Thurid. I am a citizen of two worlds. Captain John Carter of Virginia, Prince of the House of Tarduzmas, Jeddak of Helium. Take this man to your goddess, as I have said 
and tell her, too, that as I have done to Xadar and Thurid, so also can I do to the mightiest of her daters. With naked hands, with long sword or with short sword, I challenge the flower of her fighting men to combat. Come, said the officer who was guarding me back to Shador. My orders are imperative. There is to be no delay. Xadao, come you also? There was little of disrespect in the tone that the man used in addressing either Xadar or myself. It was evident that he felt less contempt for the former data since he had witnessed the ease with which I disposed of the powerful Thurid. That his respect for me was greater than it should have been for a slave was quite apparent from the fact that during the balance of the return journey he walked or stood always behind me, a drawn short sword in his hand. The return to the Sea of Amin was uneventful. We dropped down the awful shaft in the same car that had brought us to the surface. There we entered the submarine, taking the long dive to the tunnel far beneath the upper world. Then through the tunnel and up again to the pool from which we had had our first introduction to the wonderful passageway from Amin to the Temple of Issues. From the island of the submarine we were transported on a small cruiser to the distant Isle of Shadow. Here we found a small stone prison and a guard of half a dozen blacks. There was no ceremony wasted in completing our incarceration. One of the blacks opened the door of the prison with a huge key, we walked in, the door closed behind us, the lock grated, and with the sound there swept over me again that terrible feeling of hopelessness that I had felt in the chamber of mystery in the golden cliffs beneath the gardens of the holy thans. Then Tars Tarkas had been with me, but now I was utterly alone in so far as friendly companionship was concerned. I fell to wondering about the fate of the great Thark, and of his beautiful companion, the girl, Thavia. Even should they by some miracle have escaped and been received and spared by a friendly nation, what hope had I of the succor which I knew they would gladly extend if it lay in their power? They could not guess my whereabouts or my fate, for none on all Barsoom even dream of such a place as this. Nor would it have advantaged me any had they known the exact location of my prison, for who could hope to penetrate to this buried sea in the face of the mighty navy of the firstborn? No, my case was hopeless. Well, I would make the best of it, and, rising, I swept aside the brooding despair that had been endeavoring to claim me. With the idea of exploring my prison, I started to look around. Xadar sat, with bowed head, upon a low stone bench near the center of the room in which we were. He had not spoken since issues had degraded him. The building was roofless, the walls rising to a height of about thirty feet. Halfway up were a couple of small, heavily barred windows. The prison was divided into several rooms by partitions twenty feet high. There was no one in the room which we occupied, but two doors which led to other rooms were opened. I entered one of these rooms, but found it vacant. Thus I continued through several of the chambers until in the last one I found a young red Martian boy sleeping upon the stone bench which constituted the only furniture of any of the prison cells. Evidently he was the only other prisoner. As he slept I leaned over and looked at him. 
There was something strangely familiar about his face, and yet I could not place him. His features were very regular and, like the proportions of his graceful limbs and body, beautiful in the extreme. He was very light in color for a red man, but in other respects he seemed a typical specimen of this handsome race. I did not awaken him, for sleep in prison is such a priceless boon that I have seen men transformed into raging brutes when robbed by one of their fellow prisoners of a few precious moments of it. Returning to my own cell, I found Xadar still sitting in the same position in which I had left him. Man, I cried, it will profit you nothing to mope thus. It were no disgrace to be bested by John Carter. You have seen that in the ease with which I accounted for Thurid. You knew it before when on the cruiser's deck you saw me slay three of your comrades. I would that you had dispatched me at the same time, he said. Come, come I cried. There is hope yet. Neither of us is dead. We are great fighters. Why not win to freedom? He looked at me in amazement. You know not of what you speak, he replied. Issues is omnipotent. Issues is omniscient. She hears now the words you speak. She knows the thoughts you think. It is sacrilege even to dream of breaking her commands. Rot, Xadao, I ejaculated impatiently. He sprang to his feet in horror. The curse of issues will fall upon you, he cried. In another instant you will be smitten down, writhing to your death in horrible agony. Do you believe that, Sadar? I asked. Of course. Who would dare doubt I doubt? Yes, and further, I deny, I said. Why, Xadao, you tell me that she even knows my thoughts. The red men have all had that power for ages. And another wonderful power. They can shut their minds so that none may read their thoughts. I learned the first secret years ago. The other I never had to learn, since upon all Barsoom is none who can read what passes in the secret chambers of my brain. Your goddess cannot read my thoughts, nor can she read yours when you are out of sight, unless you will it. Had she been able to read mine, I am afraid that her pride would have suffered a rather severe shock when I turned at her command to gaze upon the holy vision of her radiant face. What do you mean he whispered in an affrighted voice? so low that I could scarcely hear him. I mean that I thought her the most repulsive and vilely hideous creature my eyes ever had rested upon. For a moment he eyed me in horror-stricken amazement, and then with a cry of blasphemer he sprang upon me. I did not wish to strike him again, nor was it necessary, since he was unarmed and therefore quite harmless to me. As he came I grasped his left wrist with my left hand, and, swinging my right arm about his left shoulder, caught him beneath the chin with my elbow and bore him backward across my thigh. There he hung helpless for a moment, glaring up at me in impotent rage. Xadao, I said, let us be friends. For a year, possibly, we may be forced to live together in the narrow confines of this tiny room. I am sorry to have offended you, but I could not dream that one who had suffered from the cruel injustice of issues still could believe her divine. I will say a few more words, Xadao, 
with no intent to wound your feelings further, but rather that you may give thought to the fact that while we live we are still more the arbiters of our own fate than is any god. Issues, you see, has not struck me dead, nor is she rescuing her faithful Xadar from the clutches of the unbeliever who defamed her fair beauty. No, Xadar, your issues is a mortal old woman. Once out of her clutches and she cannot harm you. With your knowledge of this strange land, and my knowledge of the outer world, two such fighting men as you and I should be able to win our way to freedom. Even though we died in the attempt, would not our memories be fairer than as though we remained in servile fear to be butchered by a cruel and unjust tyrant call her goddess or mortal, as you will. As I finished I raised Xadar to his feet and released him. He did not renew the attack upon me, nor did he speak. Instead, he walked toward the bench, and, sinking down upon it, remained lost in deep thought for hours. A long time afterward I heard a soft sound at the doorway leading to one of the other apartments, and, looking up, beheld the red Martian youth gazing intently at us. Kea, I cried, after the red Martian manner of greeting. Kea, he replied. What do you hear I await my death, I presume, I replied with a wry smile. He too smiled, a brave and winning smile. I also, he said. Mine will come soon. I looked upon the radiant beauty of issues nearly a year since. It has always been a source of keen wonder to me that I did not drop dead at the first sight of that hideous countenance. And her belly by my first ancestor, but never was there so grotesque a figure in all the universe. That they should call such a one goddess of life eternal, goddess of death, mother of the nearer moon and fifty other equally impossible titles, is quite beyond me. How came you here I asked? It is very simple. I was flying a one-man air scout far to the south when the brilliant idea occurred to me that I should like to search for the lost sea of Chris which tradition places near to the South Pole. I must have inherited from my father a wild lust for adventure, as well as a hollow where my bump of reverence should be. I had reached the area of eternal ice when my port propeller jammed, and I dropped to the ground to make repairs. Before I knew it the air was black with flyers, and a hundred of these first-born devils were leaping to the ground all about me. With drawn swords they made for me, but before I went down beneath them they had tasted of the steel of my father's sword and I had given such an account of myself as I know would have pleased my sire had he lived to witness it. Your father is dead I asked. He died before the shell broke to let me step out into a world that has been very good to me. But for the sorrow that I had never the honor to know my father, I have been very happy. My only sorrow now is that my mother must mourn me as she has for ten long years mourned my father. Who was your father I asked. He was about to reply when the outer door of our prison opened and a burly guard entered and ordered him to his own quarters for the night, locking the door after him as he passed through into the further chamber. It is issues wish that you two be confined in the same room, said the guard when he had returned to our cell. This cowardly slave of a slave is to serve you well, he said to me, 
indicating Xadar with a wave of his hand. If he does not, you are to beat him into submission. It is issues wish that you heap upon him every indignity and degradation of which you can conceive. With these words he left us. Xadar still sat with his face buried in his hands. I walked to his side and placed my hand upon his shoulder. Xadar, I said, you have heard the commands of issues, but you need not fear that I shall attempt to put them into execution. You are a brave man, Xadar. It is your own affair if you wish to be persecuted and humiliated. But were I you I should assert my manhood and defy my enemies. I have been thinking very hard, John Carter, he said, of all the new ideas you gave me a few hours since. Little by little I have been piecing together the things that you said which sounded blasphemous to me then with the things that I have seen in my past life and dared not even think about for fear of bringing down upon me the wrath of issues. I believe now that she is a fraud. No more divine than you or I more I am willing to conceive that the firstborn are no holier than the holy things, nor the holy things more holy than the red men. The whole fabric of our religion is based on superstitious belief in lies that have been foisted upon us for ages by those directly above us, to whose personal profit and aggrandizement it was to have us continue to believe as they wished us to believe. I am ready to cast off the ties that have bound me. I am ready to defy shoes herself. But what would it avail us be the firstborn gods or mortals, they are a powerful race, and we are as fast in their clutches as though we were already dead. There is no escape. I have escaped from bad plights in the past, my friend, I replied. Nor while life is in me shall I despair of escaping from the Isle of Shador and the Sea of Amin. But we cannot escape even from the four walls of our prison, urged Xadar. Test this flint-like surface, he cried, smiting the solid rock that confined us. And look upon this polished surface. None could cling to it to reach the top. I smiled. That is the least of our troubles, Xadar. I replied. I will guarantee to scale the wall and take you with me, if you will help with your knowledge of the customs here to appoint the best time for the attempt, and guide me to the shaft that leads from the dome of this abysmal sea to the light of God's pure air above. Night time is the best and offers the only slender chance we have, for then men sleep, and only a dozing watch nods in the tops of the battleships. No watch is kept upon the cruisers and smaller craft. The watchers upon the larger vessels see to all about them. It is night now. But, I exclaimed, it is not dark how can it be night, then he smiled. You forget, he said, that we are far below ground. The light of the sun never penetrates here. There are no moons and no stars reflected in the bosom of Amin. The phosphorescent light you now see pervading this great subterranean vault emanates from the rocks that form its dome. It is always thus upon a mean, just as the billows are always as you see them rolling, ever rolling over a windless sea. At the appointed hour of night upon the world above, the men whose duties hold them here sleep, but the light is ever the same. It will make escape more difficult, I said, and then I shrugged my shoulders. 
For what, pray, is the pleasure of doing an easy thing let us sleep on it tonight, said Xadar. A plan may come with our awakening. So we threw ourselves upon the hard stone floor of our prison and slept the sleep of tired men. Chapter 11 When Hell Broke Loose Early the next morning Xadar and I commenced work upon our plans for escape. First I had him sketch upon the stone floor of our cell as accurate a map of the South Polar regions as was possible with the crude instruments at our disposal a buckle from my harness, and the sharp edge of the wondrous gem I had taken from Sator Throg. From this I computed the general direction of helium and the distance at which it lay from the opening which led to Amin. Then I had him draw a map of Amin indicating plainly the position of Shador and of the opening in the dome which led to the outer world. These I studied until they were indelibly imprinted in my memory. From Xadar I learned the duties and customs of the guards who patrolled Shador. It seemed that during the hours set aside for sleep only one man was on duty at a time. He paced a beat that passed around the prison, at a distance of about a hundred feet from the building. The pace of the sentries, Xadar said, was very slow, requiring nearly ten minutes to make a single round. This meant that for practically five minutes at a time each side of the prison was unguarded as the sentry pursued his snail-like pace upon the opposite side. This information you ask, said Xadar, will be all very valuable after we get out but nothing that you have asked has any bearing on that first and most important consideration. We will get out all right, I replied, laughing. Leave that to me. When shall we make the attempt, he asked. The first night that finds a small craft moored near the shore of Shador, I replied. But how will you know that any craft is moored near Shador? The windows are far beyond our reach. Not so. Friend Xadar. Look with a bound I sprang to the bars of the window opposite us, and took a quick survey of the scene without. Several small craft and two large battleships lay within a hundred yards of shadow. Tonight, I thought, and was just about to voice my decision to Xadar, when, without warning, the door of our prison opened and a guard stepped in. If the fellow saw me there our chances of escape might quickly go glimmering, for I knew that they would put me in irons if they had the slightest conception of the wonderful agility which my earthly muscles gave me upon Mars. The man had entered and was standing facing the center of the room, so that his back was toward me. Five feet above me was the top of a partition wall separating ourselves from the next. There was my only chance to escape detection. If the fellow turned, I was lost. Nor could I have dropped to the floor undetected, since he was no nearly below me that I would have struck him had I done so. Where is the white man? cried the guard of Xadar. Issues commands his presence. He started to turn to see if I were in another part of the cell. I scrambled up the iron grating of the window until I could catch a good footing on the sill with one foot. Then I let go my hold and sprang for the partition top. What was that I heard the deep voice of the black bellow as my metal grated against the stone wall as I slipped over. Then I dropped lightly to the floor of the cell beyond. 
Where is the white slave again? cried the guard. I know not, replied Xidar. He was here even as you entered. I am not his keeper, go find him. The black grumbled something that I could not understand, and then I heard him unlocking the door into one of the other cells on the further side. Listening intently, I caught the sound as the door closed behind him. Then I sprang once more to the top of the partition and dropped into my own cell beside the astonished Xodar. Do you see now how we will escape? I asked him in a whisper. I see how you may, he replied, but I am no wiser than before as to how I am to pass these walls. Certain it is that I cannot bounce over them as you do. We heard the guard moving about from cell to cell, and finally, his rounds completed, he again entered ours. When his eyes fell upon me they fairly bulged from his head. By the shell of my first ancestor he roared. Where have you been? I have been in prison since you put me here yesterday, I answered. I was in this room when you entered. You had better look to your eyesight. He glared at me in mingled rage and relief. Come, he said. Issues commands your presence. He conducted me outside the prison, leaving Xadar behind. There we found several other guards, and with them the Red Martian youth who occupied another cell upon Shadow. The journey I had taken to the Temple of Issues on the preceding day was repeated. The guards kept the Red Boy and myself separated, so that we had no opportunity to continue the conversation that had been interrupted the previous night. The youth's face had haunted me. Where had I seen him before? There was something strangely familiar in every line of him, in his carriage, his manner of speaking, his gestures. I could have sworn that I knew him, and yet I knew too that I had never seen him before. When we reached the gardens of issues we were led away from the temple instead of toward it. The way wound through enchanted parks to a mighty wall that towered a hundred feet in air. Massive gates gave egress upon a small plain surrounded by the same gorgeous forests that I had seen at the foot of the Golden Cliffs. Crowds of blacks were strolling in the same direction that our guards were leading us, and with them mingled my old friends the plant men and great white apes. The brutal beasts moved among the crowd as pet dogs might. If they were in the way the blacks pushed them roughly to one side, or whacked them with the flat of a sword, and the animals slunk away as in great fear. Presently we came upon our destination, a great amphitheater situated at the further edge of the plain, and about half a mile beyond the garden walls. Through a massive arched gateway the blacks poured him to take their seats, while our guards led us to a smaller entrance near one end of the structure. Through this we passed into an enclosure beneath the seats, where we found a number of other prisoners herded together under guard. Some of them were in irons, but for the most part they seemed sufficiently awed by the presence of their guards to preclude any possibility of attempted escape. During the trip from Shador I had had no opportunity to talk with my fellow prisoner, but now that we were safely within the barred paddock our guards abated their watchfulness, with the result that I found myself able to approach the Red Martian youth for whom I felt such a strange attraction. 
What is the object of this assembly? I asked him. Are we to fight for the edification of the firstborn, or is it something worse than that it is a part of the monthly rites of issues, he replied, in which black men wash the sins from their souls in the blood of men from the outer world. If, perchance, the black is killed, it is evidence of his disloyalty to issues the unpardonable sin. If he lives through the contest he is held acquitted of the charge that forced the sentence of the rites, as it is called, upon him. The forms of combat vary. A number of us may be pitted together against an equal number, or twice the number of blacks. Or singly we may be sent forth to face wild beasts, or some famous black warrior. And if we are victorious, I asked, what then freedom he laughed. Freedom, forsooth? The only freedom for us death. None who enters the domains of the firstborn ever leave. If we prove able fighters we are permitted to fight often. If we are not mighty fighters he shrugged his shoulders. Sooner or later we die in the arena. And you have fought often I asked. Very often, he replied. It is my only pleasure. Some hundred black devils have I accounted for during nearly a year of the rights of issues. My mother would be very proud could she only know how well I have maintained the traditions of my father's prowess. Your father must have been a mighty warrior I said. I have known most of the warriors of Barsoom in my time. Doubtless I knew him. Who was he my father was come, Kalitz cried the rough voice of a god. To the slaughter with you, and roughly we were hustled to the steep incline that led to the chambers far below which let out upon the arena. The amphitheater, like all I had ever seen upon Basum, was built in a large excavation. Only the highest seats, which formed the low wall surrounding the pit, were above the level of the ground. The arena itself was far below the surface. Just beneath the lowest tier of seats was a series of barred cages on a level with the surface of the arena. Into these we were herded. But, unfortunately, my youthful friend was not of those who occupied a cage with me. Directly opposite my cage was the throne of issues. Here the horrid creature squatted, surrounded by a hundred slave maidens sparkling in jeweled trappings. Brilliant cloths of many hues and strange patterns formed the soft cushion covering of the dais upon which they reclined about her. On four sides of the throne and several feet below it stood three solid ranks of heavily armed soldiery, elbow to elbow. In front of these were the high dignitaries of this mock heaven gleaming blacks bedecked with precious stones, upon their foreheads the insignia of their rank set in circles of gold. On both sides of the throne stretched a solid mass of humanity from top to bottom of the amphitheater. There were as many women as men, and each was clothed in the wondrously wrought harness of his station and his house. With each black was from one to three slaves, drawn from the domains of the Thans and from the outer world. The blacks are all noble. There is no peasantry among the firstborn. Even the lowest soldier is a god and has his slaves to wait upon him. The firstborn do no work. The men fight at a sacred privilege and duty. To fight and die for issues. The women do nothing, absolutely nothing. Slaves wash them, 
slaves dress them, slaves feed them. There are some, even, who have slaves that talk for them, and I saw one who sat during the rites with closed eyes while our slave narrated to her the events that were transpiring within the arena. The first event of the day was the tribute to issues. It marked the end of those poor unfortunates who had looked upon the divine glory of the goddess a full year before. There were ten of them splendid beauties from the proud courts of mighty Jadix and from the temples of the holy Thans. For a year they had served in the retinue of issues. Today they were to pay the price of this divine preferment with their lives. Tomorrow they would grace the tables of the court functionaries. A huge black entered the arena with the young women. Carefully he inspected them, felt of their limbs and poked them in the ribs. Presently he selected one of their number whom he led before the throne of Issues. He addressed some words to the goddess which I could not hear. Issues nodded her head. The black raised his hands above his head in token of salute, grasped the girl by the wrist and dragged her from the arena through a small doorway below the throne. Issues will dine well tonight, said a prisoner beside me. What do you mean I asked? That was her dinner that old Tharbis is taking to the kitchens. Didst not note how carefully he selected the plumpest and tenderest of the lot I growled out my curses on the monster sitting opposite us on the gorgeous throne. Fume not, admonished my companion. You will see far worse than that if you live even a month among the firstborn. I turned again in time to see the gate of a nearby cage thrown open and three monstrous white apes spring into the arena. The girls shrank in a frightened group in the center of the enclosure. One was on her knees with imploring hands outstretched toward issues. But the hideous deity only leaned further forward in keener anticipation of the entertainment to come. At length the apes spied the huddled knot of terror-stricken maidens and with demoniacal shrieks of bestial frenzy, charged upon them. A wave of mad fury surged over me. The cruel cowardliness of the power-drunk creature whose malignant mind conceived such frightful forms of torture stirred to their uttermost depths my resentment and my manhood. The blood-red haze that presaged death to my foes swam before my eyes. The guard lolled before the unbarred gate of the cage which confined me. What need of bars, indeed, to keep those poor victims from rushing into the arena which the edict of the gods had appointed as their death place a single blow sent the black unconscious to the ground. Snatching up his long sword, I sprang into the arena. The apes were almost upon the maidens but a couple of mighty bounds were all my earthly muscles required to carry me to the center of the sand-strewn floor. For an instant silence reigned in the great amphitheater, then a wild shout aroused from the cages of the doomed. My long sword circled whirring through the air, and the great ape sprawled, headless, at the feet of the fainting girls. The other apes turned now upon me, and as I stood facing them a sullen roar from the audience answered the wild cheers from the cages. From the tail of my eye I saw a score of guards rushing across the glistening sand toward me. Then a figure broke from one of the cages behind them. It was the youth whose personality so fascinated me. 
he paused a moment before the cages, with upraised sword. Come, men of the outer world he shouted. Let us make our deaths worthwhile, and at the back of this unknown warrior turn this day's tribute to issues into an orgy of revenge that will echo through the ages and cause black skins to blanch at each repetition of the rights of issues. Come the racks without your cages are filled with blades. Without waiting to note the outcome of his plea, he turned and bounded toward me. From every cage that harbored dread men a thunderous shout went up in answer to his exhortation. The inner guards went down beneath howling mobs, and the cages vomited forth their inmates hot with the lust to kill. The racks that stood without were stripped of the swords with which the prisoners would have been armed to enter their allotted combats, and a swarm of determined warriors sped to our support. The great apes, towering in all their fifteen feet of height, had gone down before my sword while the charging guards were still some distance away. Close behind them pursued the youth. At my back were the young girls, and as it was in their service that I fought, I remained standing there to meet my inevitable death, but with the determination to give such an account of myself as would long be remembered in the land of the firstborn. I noted the marvelous speed of the young red man as he raced after the guards. Never had I seen such speed in any Martian. His leaps and bounds were little short of those which my earthly muscles had produced to create such awe and respect on the part of the green Martians into whose hands I had fallen on that long-gone day that had seen my first advent upon Mars. The guards had not reached me when he fell upon them from the rear and as they turned, thinking from the fierceness of his onslaught that a dozen were attacking them, I rushed them from my side. In the rapid fighting that followed I had little chance to note aught else than the movements of my immediate adversaries, but now and again I caught a fleeting glimpse of a purring sword and a lightly springing figure of sinewy steel that filled my heart with a strange yearning and a mighty but unaccountable pride. On the handsome face of the boy a grim smile played, and ever and anon he threw a taunting challenge to the foes that faced him. In this and other ways his manner of fighting was similar to that which had always marked me on the field of combat. Perhaps it was this vague likeness which made me love the boy, while the awful havoc that his sword played amongst the blacks filled my soul with a tremendous respect for him. For my part, I was fighting as I had fought a thousand times before now sidestepping a wicked thrust, now stepping quickly in to let my sword's point drink deep in a fuman's heart, before it buried itself in the throat of his companion. We were having a merry time of it, we too, when a great body of issue's own guards were ordered into the arena. On they came with fierce cries, while from every side the armed prisoners swarmed upon them. For half an hour it was as though all hell had broken loose. In the walled confines of the arena we fought in an inextricable mass howling, cursing, blood-streaked demons, and ever the sword of the young red man flashed beside me. Slowly and by repeated commands I had succeeded in drawing the prisoners into a rough formation about us so that at last we fought formed into a rude circle in the center of which were the doomed maids. Many had gone down on both sides, 
but by far the greater havoc had been wrought in the ranks of the guards of issues. I could see messengers running swiftly through the audience, and as they passed the nobles they unsheathed their swords and sprang into the arena. They were going to annihilate us by force of numbers that quite evidently their plan. I caught a glimpse of issues leaning far forward upon her throne, her hideous countenance distorted in a horrid grimace of hate and rage, in which I thought I could distinguish an expression of fear. It was that face that inspired me to the thing that followed. Quickly I ordered fifty of the prisoners to drop back behind us and form a new circle about the maidens. Remain and protect them until I return, I commanded. Then, turning to those who formed the outer line, I cried, Down with issues follow me to the throne. We will reap vengeance where vengeance is deserved. The youth at my side was the first to take up the cry of down with issues and then at my back and from all sides rose a hoarse shout, to the throne to the throne as one man we moved, an irresistible fighting mass, over the bodies of dead and dying foes toward the gorgeous throne of the Marsham deity. Hordes of the doughtiest fighting men of the firstborn poured from the audience to check our progress. We mowed them down before us as they had been paper men. To the seats, some of you I cried as we approached the arena's barrier wall. Ten of us can take the throne, for I had seen that issues guards had for the most part entered the fray within the arena. On both sides of me the prisoners broke to left and right for the seats, vaulting the low wall with dripping swords lasting for the crowded victims who awaited them. In another moment the entire amphitheater was filled with the shrieks of the dying and the wounded, mingled with the clash of arms and triumphant shouts of the victors. Side by side the young red man and I, with perhaps a dozen others, fought our way to the foot of the throne. The remaining guards, reinforced by the high dignitaries and nobles of the firstborn, closed in between us and issues who sat leaning far forward upon her carved Sir Rappus bench, now screaming high-pitched commands to her following, now hurling blighting curses upon those who sought to desecrate her godhood. The frightened slaves about her trembled in wide-eyed expectancy, knowing not whether to pray for our victory or our defeat. Several among them, proud daughters no doubt of some of Barsoom's noblest warriors, snatched swords from the hands of the fallen and fell upon the guards of issues, but they were soon cut down. Glorious martyrs to a hopeless cause. The men with us fought well, but never since Tars Tarkas and I fought out that long, hot afternoon shoulder to shoulder against the hordes of Wahoon in the Dead Sea bottom before Thark, had I seen two men fight to such good purpose and with such unconquerable ferocity as the young red man and I fought that day before the throne of issues, goddess of death, and of life eternal. Man by man those who stood between us and the carven Serapis wood bench went down before our blades. Others swarmed in to fill the breach, but inch by inch, foot by foot we won nearer and nearer to our goal. Presently a cry went up from a section of the stands nearby Rise slaves rise slaves it rose and fell until it swelled to a mighty volume of sound that swept in great billows around the entire amphitheater. For an instant, as though by common assent, 
We ceased our fighting to look for the meaning of this new note nor did it take but a moment to translate its significance. In all parts of the structure the female slaves were falling upon their masters with whatever weapon came first to hand. A dagger snatched from the harness of her mistress was waved aloft by some fair slave, its shimmering blade crimson with the lifeblood of its owner. Swords plucked from the bodies of the dead about them. Heavy ornaments which could be turned into bludgeons such were the implements with which these fair women wreaked the long-pent vengeance which at best could but partially recompense them for the unspeakable cruelties and indignities which their black masters had heaped upon them. And those who could find no other weapons used their strong fingers and their gleaming teeth. It was at once a sight to make one shudder and to cheer but in a brief second we were engaged once more in our own battle with only the unquenchable battle cry of the women to remind us that they still fought rise slaves rise slaves only a single thin rank of men now stood between us and issues. Her face was blue with terror. Foam flecked her lips. She seemed too paralyzed with fear to move. Only the youth and I fought now. The others all had fallen and I was like to have gone down too from a nasty long sword cut had not a hand reached out from behind my adversary and clutched his elbow as the blade was falling upon me. The youth sprang to my side and ran his sword through the fellow before he could recover to deliver another blow. I should have died even then but for that as my sword was tight wedged in the breastbone of a dater of the firstborn. As the fellow went down I snatched his sword from him and over his prostrate body looked into the eyes of the one whose quick hand had saved me from the first cut of his sword it was Fedor, daughter of Matishang. Fly, my prince she cried. It is useless to fight them longer. All within the arena are dead. All who charge the throne are dead but you and this youth. Only among the seats are there left any of your fighting men and they and the slave women are fast being cut down. Listen you can scarce hear the battle cry of the women now for nearly all are dead. For each one of you there are ten thousand blacks within the domains of the firstborn. Break for the open and the sea of Gris. With your mighty sword arm you may yet win to the golden cliffs and the templed gardens of the holy thans. There tell your story to Matashang, my father. He will keep you and together you may find a way to rescue me. Fly while there is yet a bare chance for flight. But that was not my mission, nor could I see much to be preferred in the cruel hospitality of the holy thans to that of the firstborn. Down with issues I shouted, and together the boy and I took up the fight once more. Two blacks went down with our swords in their vitals, and we stood face to face with issues. As my sword went up to end her horrid career her paralysis left her, and with an ear-piercing shriek she turned to flee. Directly behind her a black gulf suddenly yawned in the flooring of the days. She sprang for the opening with the youth and I close at her heels. Her scattered guard rallied at her cry and rushed for us. A blow fell upon the head of the youth. He staggered and would have fallen but I caught him in my left arm and turned to face an infuriated mob of religious fanatics crazed by the affront I had put upon their goddess, 
just as issues disappeared into the black depths beneath me. Chapter 12. Doomed to Die. For an instant I stood there before they fell upon me, but the first rush of them forced me back a step or two. My foot felt for the floor but found only empty space. I had backed into the pit which had received issues. For a second I toppled there upon the brink. Then I too with the boy still tightly clutched in my arms pitched backward into the black abyss. We struck a polished chute, the opening above us closed as magically as it had opened, and we shot down, unharmed, into a dimly lighted apartment far below the arena. As I rose to my feet the first thing I saw was the malignant countenance of issues glaring at me through the heavy bars of a grated door at one side of the chamber. Rash mortal she shrilled. You shall pay the awful penalty for your blasphemy in this secret cell. Here you shall lie alone and in darkness with the carcass of your accomplice festering in its rottenness by your side until crazed by loneliness and hunger you feed upon the crawling maggots that were once a man. That was all. In another instant she was gone, and the dim light which had filled the cell faded into Cimmerian blackness. Pleasant old lady, said a voice at my side. Who speaks I asked. Tis I, your companion, who has had the honor this day of fighting shoulder to shoulder with the greatest warrior that ever wore metal upon Barsoom. I thank God that you are not dead, I said. I feared for the nasty cut upon your head. It but stunned me, he replied. A mere scratch. Maybe it were as well had it been final, I said. We seem to be in a pretty fix here with a splendid chance of dying of starvation and thirst. Where are we beneath the arena, I replied. We tumbled down the shaft that swallowed issues as she was almost at our mercy. He laughed a low laugh of pleasure and relief, and then reaching out through the inky blackness he sought my shoulder and pulled my ear close to his mouth. Nothing could be better, he whispered. There are secrets within the secrets of issues of which issues herself he does not dream. What do you mean I labored with the other slaves a year since in the remodeling of these subterranean galleries, and at that time we found below these an ancient system of corridors and chambers that had been sealed up for ages. The blacks in charge of the work explored them, taking several of us along to do whatever work there might be occasion for. I know the entire system perfectly. There are miles of corridors honeycombing the ground beneath the gardens and the temple itself, and there is one passage that leads down to and connects with the lower regions that open on the water shaft that gives passage to Amin. If we can reach the submarine undetected we may yet make the sea in which there are many islands where the blacks never go. There we may live for a time, and who knows what may transpire to aid us to escape he had spoken all in a low whisper, evidently fearing spying is even here, and so I answered him in the same subdued tone. Lead back to Shador, my friend, I whispered. Xadao, the black, is there. We were to attempt our escape together, so I cannot desert him. No, said the boy, one cannot desert a friend. It were better to be recaptured ourselves than that. 
Then he commenced groping his way about the floor of the dark chamber searching for the trap that led to the corridors beneath. At length he summoned me by a low, SST, and I crept toward the sound of his voice to find him kneeling on the brink of an opening in the floor. There is a drop here of about ten feet, he whispered. Hang by your hands and you will alight safely on a level floor of soft sand. Very quietly I lowered myself from the inky cellar above into the inky pit below. So utterly dark was it that we could not see our hands at an inch from our noses. Never, I think, have I known such complete absence of light as existed in the pits of issues. For an instant I hung in mid-air. There is a strange sensation connected with an experience of that nature which is quite difficult to describe. When the feet tread empty air and the distance below is shrouded in darkness there is a feeling akin to panic at the thought of releasing the hold and taking the plunge into unknown depths. Although the boy had told me that it was but ten feet to the floor below I experienced the same thrills as though I were hanging above a bottomless pit. Then I released my hold and dropped four feet to a soft cushion of sand. The boy followed me. Raise me to your shoulders, he said, and I will replace the trap. This done he took me by the hand, leading me very slowly, with much feeling about and frequent halts to assure himself that he did not stray into wrong passageways. Presently we commenced the descent of a very steep incline. It will not be long, he said, before we shall have light. At the lower levels we meet the same strata of phosphorescent rock that illuminates our mean. Never shall I forget the trip through the pits of issues. While it was devoid of important incidents yet it was filled for me with a strange charm of excitement and adventure which I think I must have hinged principally on the unguessable antiquity of these long-forgotten corridors. The things which the Stygian darkness hid from my objective I could not have been half so wonderful as the pictures which my imagination wrought as it conjured to life again the ancient peoples of this dying world and set them once more to the labors, the intrigues, the mysteries and the cruelties which they had practiced to make their last stand against the swarming hordes of the Dead Sea Bottoms that had driven them step by step to the uttermost pinnacle of the world where they were now entrenched behind an impenetrable barrier of superstition. In addition to the green men there had been three principal races upon Barsoom. The blacks, the whites, and a race of yellow men. As the waters of the planet dried and the seas receded, all other resources dwindled until life upon the planet became a constant battle for survival. The various races had made war upon one another for ages, and the three higher types had easily bested the green savages of the water places of the world, but now that the receding seas necessitated constant abandonment of their fortified cities and forced upon them a more or less nomadic life in which they became separated into smaller communities they soon fell prey to the fierce hordes of green men. The result was a partial amalgamation of the blacks, whites and yellows, the result of which is shown in the present splendid race of red men. I had always supposed that all traces of the original races had disappeared from the face of Mars, yet within the past four days I had found both whites and blacks in great multitudes. 
Could it be possible that in some far-off corner of the planet there still existed a remnant to the ancient race of yellow men my reveries were broken in upon by a low exclamation from the boy? At last, the lighting them way, he cried, and looking up I beheld at a long distance before us a dim radiance. As we advanced the light increased until presently we emerged into well-lighted passageways. From then on our progress was rapid until we came suddenly to the end of a corridor that led directly upon the ledge surrounding the pool of the submarine. The craft lay at her moorings with uncovered hatch. Raising his finger to his lips and then tapping his sword in a significant manner, the youth crept noiselessly toward the vessel. I was close at his heels. Silently we dropped to the deserted deck and on hands and knees crawled toward the hatchway. A stealthy glance below revealed no guard in sight, and so with the quickness and the soundlessness of cats we dropped together into the main cabin of the submarine. Even here was no sign of life. Quickly we covered and secured the hatch. Then the boy stepped into the pilot house, touched a button and the boat sank amid swirling waters toward the bottom of the shaft. Even then there was no scurrying of feet as we had expected, and while the boy remained to direct the boat I slid from cabin to cabin in futile search for some member of the crew. The craft was entirely deserted. Such good fortune seemed almost unbelievable. When I returned to the pilot house to report the good news to my companion he handed me a paper. This may explain the absence of the crew, he said. It was a radio aerial message to the commander of the submarine, the slaves have risen. Come with what men you have and those that you can gather on the way. Too late to get aid from Amin. They are massacring all within the amphitheater. Issues is threatened. Haste. Zitad Zitad is data of the guards of issues, explained the youth. We gave them a bad scare one that they will not soon forget. Let us hope that it is but the beginning of the end of issues, I said. Only our first ancestor knows, he replied. We reached the submarine pool in Amin without incident. Here we debated the wisdom of sinking the craft before leaving her, but finally decided that it would add nothing to our chances for escape. There were plenty of blacks on Amin to thwart us where we apprehended, However many more might come from the temples and gardens of issues would not in any decrease our chances. We were now in a quandary as to how to pass the guards who patrolled the island about the pool. At last I hit upon a plan. What is the name or title of the officer in charge of these guards I asked the boy. A fellow named Tirith was on duty when we entered this morning, he replied. Good. And what is the name of the commander of the submarine he erstid? I found a dispatch blank in the cabin and wrote the following order, Data Tirith, return these two slaves at once to Shadow. He erstid that will be the simpler way to return, I said, smiling, as I handed the forged order to the boy. Come, we shall see now how well it works. But our swords he exclaimed. What shall we say to explain them since we cannot explain them we shall have to leave them behind us, I replied. Is it not the extreme of rashness to thus put ourselves again, unarmed, 
In the power of the firstborn it is the only way, I answered. You may trust me to find a way out of the prison of Shador, and I think, once out, that we shall find no great difficulty in arming ourselves once more in a country which abounds so plentifully in armed men. As you say, he replied with a smile and shrug. I could not follow another leader who inspired greater confidence than you. Come, let us put your rose to the test. Boldly we emerged from the hatchway of the craft, leaving our swords behind us, and strolled to the main exit which led to the sentry's post and the office of the data of the guard. At sight of us the members of the guard sprang forward in surprise, and with leveled rifles halted us. I held out the message to one of them. He took it and seeing to whom it was addressed turned and handed it to Tarith who was emerging from his office to learn the cause of the commotion. The black read the order, and for a moment eyed us with evident suspicion. Where is Data Eerstit he asked, and my heart sank within me, as I cursed myself for a stupid fool in not having sunk the submarine to make good the lie that I must tell. His orders were to return immediately to the temple landing, I replied. Therese took a half step toward the entrance to the pool as though to corroborate my story. For that instant everything hung in the balance, for yet he done so and found the empty submarine still lying at her wharf the whole weak fabric of my concoction would have tumbled about our heads. But evidently he decided the message must be genuine nor indeed was there any good reason to doubt it since it would scarce have seemed credible to him that two slaves would voluntarily have given themselves into custody in any such manner as this. It was the very boldness of the plan which rendered it successful. Were you connected with the rising of the slaves? asked Tarith. We have just had meagre reports of some such event. All were involved, I replied but it amounted to little. The guards quickly overcame and killed the majority of us. He seemed satisfied with this reply. Take them to Shador, he ordered, turning to one of his subordinates. We entered a small boat lying beside the island, and in a few minutes were disembarking upon Shador. Here we were returned to our respective cells. I with Xadar, the boy by himself, and behind locked doors we were again prisoners of the firstborn. Chapter 13. A Break for Liberty. Xadar listened in incredulous astonishment to my narration of the events which had transpired within the arena of the rights of issues. He could scarce conceive, even though he had already professed his doubt as to the deity of issues, that one could threaten her with sword in hand and not be blasted into a thousand fragments by the mere fury of her divine wrath. It is the final proof, he said, at last. No more is needed to completely shatter the last remnant of my superstitious belief in the divinity of issues. She is only a wicked old woman, wielding a mighty power for evil through machinations that have kept her own people and all Barsoom in religious ignorance for ages. She is still all-powerful here, however, I replied. So it behooves us to leave at the first moment that appears at all propitious. I hope that you may find a propitious moment, he said, with a laugh, 
for it is certain that in all my life I have never seen one in which a prisoner of the firstborn might escape. Tonight will do as well as any, I replied. It will soon be night, said Xadar. How may I aid in the adventure can you swim I asked him. No slimy Sicilian that haunts the depths of Chris is more at home in water than is Xadar, he replied. Good. The red one in all probability cannot swim, I said, since there is scarce enough water in all their domains to float the tiniest craft. One of us therefore will have to support him through the sea to the craft we select. I had hoped that we might make the entire distance below the surface, but I fear that the red youth could not thus perform the trip. Even the bravest of the brave among them are terrorized at the mere thought of deep water, for it has been ages since their forebears saw a lake, a river or a sea. The red one is to accompany us asked Xadar. Yes. It is well. Three swords are better than two. Especially when the third is as mighty as this fellow's. I have seen him battle in the arena at the rights of issues many times. Never, until I saw you fight, had I seen one who seemed unconquerable even in the face of great odds. One might think you two master and pupil, or father and son. Come to recall his face there is a resemblance between you. It is very marked when you fight there is the same grim smile, the same maddening contempt for your adversary apparent in every movement of your bodies and in every changing expression of your faces. Be that as it may, Xadao, he is a great fighter. I think that we will make a trio difficult to overcome, and if my friend Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark, were but one of us we could fight our way from one end of Barsoom to the other even though the whole world were pitted against us. It will be, said Xadar, when they find from whence you have come. That is but one of the superstitions which issues has foisted upon a credulous humanity. She works through the whole Ethans who are as ignorant of her real self as are the Barsoomians of the outer world. Her decrees are born to the thumbs written in blood upon a strange parchment. The poor deluded fools think that they are receiving the revelations of a goddess through some supernatural agency, since they find these messages upon their guarded altars to which none could have access without detection. I myself have borne these messages for issues for many years. There is a long tunnel from the Temple of Issues to the principal temple of Matishang. It was dug ages ago by the slaves of the firstborn in such utter secrecy that no Thun ever guessed its existence. The Thuns for their part have temples dotted about the entire civilized world. Here priests whom the people never see communicate the doctrine of the mysterious river ice, the valley door, and the lost sea of Christ to persuade the poor deluded creatures to take the voluntary pilgrimage that swells the wealth of the holy Thuns and adds to the numbers of their slaves. Thus the Thuns are used as the principal means for collecting the wealth and labor that the firstborn wrest from them as they need it. Occasionally the firstborn themselves make raids upon the outer world. It is then that they capture many females of the royal houses of the Red Men, and take the newest in battleships and the trained artisans who build them, that they may copy what they cannot create. We are an unproductive race, 
priding ourselves upon our non-productiveness. It is criminal for a firstborn to labor or invent. That is the work of the lower orders, who live merely that the firstborn may enjoy long lives of luxury and idleness. With us fighting is all that counts. Were it not for that there would be more of the firstborn than all the creatures of Barsoom could support, for in so far as I know none of us ever dies a natural death. Our females would live forever but for the fact that we tire of them and remove them to make place for others. Issues alone of all is protected against death. She has lived for countless ages. Would not the other Barsoomians live forever but for the doctrine of the voluntary pilgrimage which drags them to the bosom of Isidore before their thousandth year I asked him. I feel now that there is no doubt but that they are precisely the same species of creature as the firstborn, and I hope that I shall live to fight for them in atonement of the sins I have committed against them through the ignorance born of generations of false teaching. As he ceased speaking a weird call rang out across the waters of Amin. I had heard it at the same time the previous evening and knew that it marked the ending of the day, when the men of Amin spread their silks upon the deck of battleship and cruiser and fall into the dreamless sleep of Mars. Our guard entered to inspect us for the last time before the new day broke upon the world above. His duty was soon performed and the heavy door of our prison closed behind him dash we were alone for the night. I gave him time to return to his quarters, as Xedar said he probably would do, then I sprang to the grated window and surveyed the nearby waters. At a little distance from the island, a quarter of a mile perhaps, lay a monster battleship, while between her and the shore were a number of smaller cruisers and one-man scouts. Upon the battleship alone was there a watch. I could see him plainly in the upper works of the ship, and as I watched I saw him spread his sleeping silks upon the tiny platform in which he was stationed. Soon he threw himself at full length upon his couch. The discipline on Amin was lax indeed. But it is not to be wondered that since no enemy guessed the existence upon Barsoom of such a fleet, or even of the firstborn, or the Sea of Amin. Why indeed should they maintain a watch presently I dropped to the floor again and talked with Xadar, describing the various craft I had seen. There is one there, he said, my personal property, a built to carry five men, that is the swiftest of the swift. If we can board her we can at least make a memorable run for liberty, and then he went on to describe to me the equipment of the boat, her engines, and all that went to make her the flyer that she was. In his explanation I recognized the trick of gearing that Kantoskan had taught me that time we sailed under false names in the navy of Zodanga beneath Sabdan, the prince. And I knew then that the firstborn had stolen it from the ships of Helium, for only they are thus geared. And I knew too that Xadar spoke the truth when he lauded the speed of his little craft, for nothing that cleaves the thin air of Mars can approximate the speed of the ships of Helium. We decided to wait for an hour at least until all the stragglers had sought their silks. In the meantime I was to fetch the red youth to our cell so that we would be in readiness to make our rash break for freedom together. 
I sprang to the top of our partition wall and pulled myself up on it. There I found a flat surface about a foot in width and along this I walked until I came to the cell in which I saw the boy sitting upon his bench. He had been leaning back against the wall looking up at the glowing dome above Amin, and when he spied me balancing upon the partition wall above him his eyes opened wide in astonishment. Then a wide grin of appreciative understanding spread across his countenance. As I stooped to drop to the floor beside him he motioned me to wait, and coming close below me whispered, Catch my hand. I can almost leap to the top of that wall myself. I have tried it many times, and each day I come a little closer. Some day I should have been able to make it. I lay upon my belly across the wall and reached my hand far down toward him. With a little run from the center of the cell he sprang up until I grasped his outstretched hand, and thus I pulled him to the wall's top beside me. You are the first jumper I ever saw among the red men of Basum, I said. He smiled. It is not strange. I will tell you why when we have more time. Together we returned to the cell in which Xadar sat, descending to talk with him until the hour had passed. There we made our plans for the immediate future, binding ourselves by a solemn oath to fight to the death for one another against whatsoever enemies should confront us, for we knew that even should we succeed in escaping the firstborn we might still have a whole world against us the power of religious superstition is mighty. It was agreed that I should navigate the craft after we had reached her, and that if we made the outer world in safety we should attempt to reach Helium without a stop. Why Helium asked the red youth. I am a prince of Helium, I replied. He gave me a peculiar look, but said nothing further on the subject. I wondered at the time what the significance of his expression might be, but in the press of other matters it soon left my mind nor did I have occasion to think of it again until later. Come, I said at length, now is as good a time as any. Let us go. Another moment found me at the top of the partition wall again with the boy beside me. And buckling my harness I snapped it together with a single long strap which I lowered to the waiting Xadar below. He grasped the end and was soon sitting beside us. How simple, he laughed. The balance should be even simpler, I replied. Then I raised myself to the top of the outer wall of the prison, just so that I could peer over and locate the passing sentry. For a matter of five minutes I waited and then he came in sight on his slow and snail-like beat about the structure. I watched him until he had made the turn at the end of the building which carried him out of sight of the side of the prison that was to witness our dash for freedom. The moment his form disappeared I grasped Xadar and drew him to the top of the wall. Placing one end of my harness trap in his hands I lowered him quickly to the ground below. Then the boy grasped the strap and slid down to Xadar's side. In accordance with our arrangement they did not wait for me, but walked slowly toward the water, a matter of a hundred yards, directly past the guard house filled with sleeping soldiers. They had taken scarce a dozen steps when I too dropped to the ground and followed them leisurely toward the shore. 
As I passed the guardhouse the thought of all the good blades lying there gave me pause, for if ever men were to have need of swords it was my companions and I on the perilous trip upon which we were about to embark. I glanced toward Xadar and the youth and saw that they had slipped over the edge of the dock into the water. In accordance with our plan they were to remain there clinging to the metal rings which studded the concrete-like substance of the dock at the water's level, with only their mouths and noses above the surface of the sea, until I should join them. The lure of the swords within the guardhouse was strong upon me, and I hesitated a moment, half inclined to risk the attempt to take the few we needed. That he who hesitates is lost proved itself a true aphorism in this instance, for another moment saw me creeping stealthily toward the door of the guardhouse. Gently I pressed it open the crack, enough to discover a dozen blacks stretched upon their silks in profound slumber. At the far side of the room a rack held the swords and firearms of the men. Warily I pushed the door a trifle wider to admit my body. A hinge gave out a resentful groan. One of the men stirred, and my heart stood still. I cursed myself for a fool to have thus jeopardized our chances for escape. But there was nothing for it now but to see the adventure through. With a spring as swift and as noiseless as a tiger's I lit beside the guardsman who had moved. My hands hovered about his throat awaiting the moment that his eyes should open. For what seemed an eternity to my overwrought nerves I remained poised thus. Then the fellow turned again upon his side and resumed the even respiration of deep slumber. Carefully I picked my way between and over the soldiers until I had gained the rack at the far side of the room. Here I turned to survey the sleeping men. All were quiet. Their regular breathing rose and fell in a soothing rhythm that seemed to me the sweetest music I ever had heard. Gingerly I drew a long sword from the rack. The scraping of the scabbard against its holder as I withdrew it sounded like the filing of cast iron with the great rasp, and I looked to see the room immediately filled with alarmed and attacking guardsmen. But none stirred. The second sword I withdrew noiselessly but the third clanked in its scabbard with a frightful din. I knew that it must awaken some of the men at least, and was on the point of forestalling their attack by a rapid charge for the doorway, when again, to my intense surprise, not a black moved. Either they were wondrous heavy sleepers or else the noises that I made were really much less than they seemed to me. I was about to leave the rack when my attention was attracted by the revolvers. I knew that I could not carry more than one away with me, for I was already too heavily laden to move quietly with any degree of safety or speed. As I took one of them from its pin my eye fell for the first time on an open window beside the rack. Ah, here was a splendid means of escape, for it led directly upon the dock, not twenty feet from the water's edge. And as I congratulated myself, I heard the door opposite me open, and there looking me full in the face stood the officer of the guard. He evidently took in the situation at a glance and appreciated the gravity of it as quickly as I, for our revolvers came up simultaneously and the sounds of the two reports were as one as we touched the buttons on the grips that exploded the cartridges. 
I felt the wind of his bullet as it whizzed past my ear, and at the same instant I saw him crumple to the ground. Where I hit him I do not know, nor if I killed him, for scarce had he started to collapse when I was through the window at my rear. In another second the waters of Amin closed above my head, and the three of us were making for the little flyer a hundred yards away. Xadar was burdened with the boy, and I with the three long swords. The revolver I had dropped, so that while we were both strong swimmers it seemed to me that we moved at a snail's pace through the water. I was swimming entirely beneath the surface, but Xadar was compelled to rise off and to let the youth breathe, so it was a wonder that we were not discovered long before we were. In fact we reached the boat's side and were all aboard before the watch upon the battleship, aroused by the shots, detected us. Then an alarm gun bellowed from a ship's bow, its deep boom reverberating in deafening tones beneath the rocky dome of Amin. Instantly the sleeping thousands were awake. The decks of a thousand monster craft teemed with fighting men, for an alarm on Amin was a thing of rare occurrence. We cast away before the sound of the first gun had died, and another second saw us rising swiftly from the surface of the sea. I lay at full length along the deck with the levers and buttons of control before me. Xadar and the boy were stretched directly behind me, prone also that we might offer as little resistance to the air as possible. Rise high, whispered Xadar. They dare not fire their heavy guns toward the dome the fragments of the shells would drop back among their own craft. If we are high enough our keel plates will protect us from rifle fire. I did as he bade. Below us we could see the men leaping into the water by hundreds, and striking out for the small cruisers and one-man flyers that lay moored about the big ships. The larger craft were getting underway, following us rapidly, but not rising from the water. A little to your right, cried Xadar, for there are no points of compass upon a mean where every direction is due north. The pandemonium that had broken out below us was deafening. Rifles cracked, officers shouted orders, men yelled directions to one another from the water and from the decks of myriad boats, while through all ran the purr of countless propellers cutting water and air. I had not dared pull my speed lever to the highest for fear of overrunning the mouth of the shaft that passed from Amin's dome to the world above but even so we were hitting a clip that I doubt has ever been equaled on the windless sea. The smaller flyers were commencing to rise toward us when Xadar shouted, the shaft, the shaft dead ahead, and I saw the opening, black and yawning in the glowing dome of this underworld. A ten-man cruiser was rising directly in front to cut off our escape. It was the only vessel that stood in our way but at the rate that it was travelling it would come between us and the shaft in plenty of time to thwart our plans. It was rising at an angle of about 45 degrees dead ahead of us, with the evident intention of combing us with grappling hooks from above as it skimmed low over our deck. There was but one forlorn hope for us, and I took it. It was useless to try to pass over her, for that would have allowed her to force us against the rocky dome above and we were already too near that as it was. To have attempted to dive below her would have put us entirely at her mercy, 
and precisely where she wanted us. On either side a hundred other menacing craft were hastening toward us. The alternative was filled with risk in fact it was all risk, with but a slender chance of success. As we neared the cruiser I rose as though to pass above her, so that she would do just what she did do, rise at a steeper angle to force me still higher. Then as we were almost upon her I yelled to my companions to hold tight, and throwing the little vessel into her highest speed I deflected her bows at the same instant until we were running horizontally and at terrific velocity straight for the cruiser's keel. Her commander may have seen my intentions then, but it was too late. Almost at the instant of impact I turned my bows upward, and then with a shattering jolt we were in collision. What I had hoped for happened. The cruiser, already tilted at a perilous angle, was carried completely over backward by the impact of my smaller vessel. Her crew fell twisting and screaming through the air to the water far below, while the cruiser, her propellers still madly churning, dived swiftly head foremost after them to the bottom of the sea of Amin. The collision crushed our steel bows, and notwithstanding every effort on our part came near to hurling us from the deck. As it was we landed in a wildly clutching heap at the very extremity of the flyer, where Xadar and I succeeded in grasping the handrail, but the boy would have plunged overboard had I not fortunately grasped his ankle as he was already partially over. Unguided, our vessel careened wildly in its mad flight, rising ever nearer the rocks above. It took but an instant, however, for me to regain the levers, and with the roof barely fifty feet above I turned her nose once more into the horizontal plane and headed her again for the black mouth of the shaft. The collision had retarded our progress and now a hundred swift scouts were close upon us. Xadar had told me that ascending the shaft by virtue of our repulsive rays alone would give our enemies their best chance to overtake us, since our propellers would be idle and in rising we would be outclassed by many of our pursuers. The swifter craft are seldom equipped with large buoyancy tanks, since the added bulk of them tends to reduce a vessel's speed. As many boats were now quite close to us it was inevitable that we would be quickly overhauled in the shaft, and captured or killed in short order. To me there always seems a way to gain the opposite side of an obstacle. If one cannot pass over it, or below it, or around it, why then there is but a single alternative left, and that is to pass through it. I could not get around the fact that many of these other boats could rise faster than ours by the fact of their greater buoyancy, but I was nonetheless determined to reach the outer world far in advance of them or die a death of my own choosing in event of failure. Reverse screamed Xadar, behind me. For the love of your first ancestor, Reverse, we are at the shaft. Hold tight I screamed in reply. Grasp the boy and hold tight we are going straight up the shaft. The words were scarce out of my mouth as we swept beneath the pitch black opening. I threw the bow hard up, dragged the speed lever to its last notch, and clutching a stanchion with one hand and the steering wheel with the other hung on like grim death and consigned my soul to its author. I heard a little exclamation of surprise from Xadar, 
followed by a grim laugh. The boy laughed too and said something which I could not catch for the whistling of the wind of our awful speed. I looked above my head, hoping to catch the gleam of stars by which I could direct our course and hold the hurtling thing that bore us true to the center of the shaft. To have touched the side of the speed we were making would doubtless have resulted in instant death for us all. But not a star showed above only utter and impenetrable darkness. Then I glanced below me, and there I saw a rapidly diminishing circle of light the mouth of the opening above the phosphorescent radiance of Amin. By this I steered, endeavoring to keep the circle of light below me ever perfect. At best it was but a slender cord that held us from destruction, and I think that I steered the night more by intuition and blind faith than by skill or reason. We were not long in the shaft, and possibly the very fact of our enormous speed saved us, for evidently we started in the right direction and so quickly were we out again that we had no time to alter our course. I mean lies perhaps two miles below the surface crust of Mars. Our speed must have approximated 200 miles an hour, for Martian flyers are swift, so that at most we were in the shaft not over 40 seconds. We must have been out of it for some seconds before I realized that we had accomplished the impossible. Black darkness enshrouded all about us. There were neither moons nor stars. Never before had I seen such a thing upon Mars, and for the moment I was nonplussed. Then the explanation came to me. It was summer at the South Pole. The ice cap was melting and those meteoric phenomena, clouds, unknown upon the greater part of Basum, were shutting out the light of heaven from this portion of the planet. Fortunate indeed it was for us, nor did it take me long to grasp the opportunity for escape which this happy condition offered us. Keeping the boat's nose at a stiff angle I raced her for the impenetrable curtain which nature had hung above this dying world to shut us out from the sight of our pursuing enemies. We plunged through the cold camp fog without diminishing our speed, and in a moment emerged into the glorious light of the two moons and the million stars. I dropped into a horizontal course and headed due north. Our enemies were a good half hour behind us with no conception of our direction. We had performed the miraculous and come through a thousand dangers unscathed we had escaped from the land of the firstborn. No other prisoners in all the ages of Barsoom had done this thing, and now as I look back upon it it did not seem to have been so difficult after all. I said as much to Xadar, over my shoulder. It is very wonderful, nevertheless, he replied. No one else could have accomplished it but John Carter. At the sound of that name the boy jumped to his feet. John Carter, he cried. John Carter, why, man. John Carter, Prince of Helium, has been dead for years. I am his son. Chapter 14 The Eyes in the Dark My son I could not believe my ears. Slowly I rose and faced the handsome youth. Now that I looked at him closely I commenced to see why his face and personality had attracted me so strongly. There was much of his mother's incomparable beauty in his clear-cut features, but it was strongly masculine beauty, and his grey eyes and the expression of them were mine. 
The boy stood facing me, half hope and half uncertainty in his look. Tell me of your mother, I said. Tell me all you can of the years that I have been robbed by a relentless fate of her dear companionship. With a cry of pleasure he sprang toward me and threw his arms about my neck, and for a brief moment as I held my boy close to me the tears welled to my eyes and I was like to have choked after the manner of some maudlin fool but I do not regret it, nor am I ashamed. A long life has taught me that a man may seem weak where women and children are concerned and yet be anything but a weakling in the sterner avenues of life. Your stature, your man, the terrible ferocity of your swordsmanship, said the boy, are as my mother has described them to me a thousand times but even with such evidence I could scarce credit the truth of what seemed so improbable to me, however much I desired it to be true. Do you know what thing it was that convinced me more than all the others what, my boy I asked? Your first words to me they were of my mother. None else but the man who loved her as she has told me my father did would have thought first of her. For long years, my son, I can scarce recall a moment that the radiant vision of your mother's face has not been ever before me. Tell me of her. Those who have known her longest say that she has not changed, unless it be to grow more beautiful with it possible. Only, when she thinks I am not about to see her, her face grows very sad, and, oh, so wistful. She thinks ever of you, my father, and all Helium mourns with her and for her. Her grandfather's people love her. They loved you also and fairly worship your memory as the saviour of Barsoom. Each year that brings its anniversary of the day that saw you racing across a near-dead world to unlock the secret of that awful portal behind which lay the mighty power of life for countless millions a great festival is held in your honour. But there are tears mingled with the thanksgiving tears of real regret that the author of the happiness is not with them to share the joy of living he died to give them. Upon all Barsoom there is no greater name than John Carter. And by what name has your mother called you, my boy I asked. The people of Helium asked that I be named with my father's name, but my mother said no, that you and she had chosen a name for me together, and that your wish must be honoured before all others, so the name that she called me is the one that you desired, a combination of hers and yours Cartoris. Sadar had been at the wheel as I talked with my son, and now he called me. She is dropping badly by the head, John Carter, he said. So long as we were rising at a stiff angle it was not noticeable, but now that I am trying to keep a horizontal course it is different. The wound in her bow has opened one of her forward ray tanks. It was true and after I had examined the damage I found it a much graver matter than I had anticipated. Not only was the forced angle at which we were compelled to maintain the bow in order to keep a horizontal course greatly impeding our speed, but at the rate that we were losing our repulsive rays from the forward tanks it was but a question of an hour or more when we would be floating stern up and helpless. We had slightly reduced our speed with the dawning of a sense of security, but now I took the helm once more and pulled the noble little engine wide open, so that again we raced north at terrific velocity. 
In the meantime, Cartoris and Xadar with tools in hand were puttering with the great rent in the bow in a hopeless endeavor to stem the tide of escaping rays. It was still dark when we passed the northern boundary of the ice cap and the area of clouds. Below us lay a typical Martian landscape. Rolling ochre sea bottom of long dead seas, low surrounding hills, with here and there the grim and silent cities of the dead past. Great piles of mighty architecture tenanted only by age-old memories of a once powerful race, and by the great white apes of Barsoom. It was becoming more and more difficult to maintain our little vessel in a horizontal position. Lower and lower sagged the bow until it became necessary to stop the engine to prevent our flight terminating in a swift dive to the ground. As the sun rose and the light of a new day swept away the darkness of night our craft gave a final spasmodic plunge, turned half upon her side, and then with deck tilting at a sickening angle swung in a slow circle, her bow dropping further below her stern each moment. The handrail and stanchion we clung, and finally as we saw the end approaching, snapped the buckles of our harness to the rings at her sides. In another moment the deck reared at an angle of ninety degrees and we hung in our leather with feet dangling a thousand yards above the ground. I was swinging quite close to the controlling devices, so I reached out to the lever that directed the rays of repulsion. The boat responded to the touch, and very gently we began to sink toward the ground. It was fully half an hour before we touched. Directly north of us rose a rather lofty range of hills, toward which we decided to make our way, since they afforded greater opportunity for concealment from the pursuers we were confident might stumble in this direction. An hour later found us in the time-rounded gullies of the hills, amid the beautiful flowering plants that abound in the arid waste places of Barsoom. There we found numbers of huge milk-giving shrubs that strange plant which serves in great part as food and drink for the wild hordes of green men. It was indeed a boon to us, for we all were nearly famished. Beneath a cluster of these which afforded perfect concealment from wandering air scouts, we lay down to sleep for me the first time in many hours. This was the beginning of my fifth day upon Barsoom since I had found myself suddenly translated from my cottage on the Hudson to Dor, the valley beautiful, the valley hideous. In all this time I had slept but twice, though once the clock around within the storehouse of the Thans. It was mid-afternoon when I was awakened by someone seizing my hand and covering it with kisses. With the start I opened my eyes to look into the beautiful face of Thavia. My prince, my prince, she cried, in an ecstasy of happiness. Tis you whom I had mourned as dead. My ancestors have been good to me. I have not lived in vain. The girl's voice awoke Sadar and Kartoris. The boy gazed upon the woman in surprise but she did not seem to realize the presence of another than I she would have thrown her arms about my neck and smothered me with caresses, had I not gently but firmly disengaged myself. Come, come, Thavia, I said soothingly. You are overwrought by the danger and hardships you have passed through. You forget yourself, as you forget that I am the husband of the princess of Helium. 
I forget nothing, my prince, she replied. You have spoken no word of love to me, nor do I expect that you ever shall. But nothing can prevent me loving you. I would not take the place of Deja Taurus. My greatest ambition is to serve you, my prince, forever as your slave. No greater boon could I ask, no greater honor could I crave, no greater happiness could I hope. As I have before said, I am no lady's man, and I must admit that I seldom have felt so uncomfortable and embarrassed as I did that moment. While I was quite familiar with the Martian custom which allows female slaves to Martian men, whose high and chivalrous honor is always ample protection for every woman in his household, yet I had never myself chosen other than men as my body servants. And I ever returned to Helium, Thavia, I said, you shall go with me, but as an honored equal, and not as a slave. There you shall find plenty of handsome young nobles who would face issues herself to win a smile from you, and we shall have you married in short order to one of the best of them. Forget your foolish gratitude begotten infatuation, which your innocence has mistaken for love. I like your friendship better, Thavia. You are my master. It shall be as you say, she replied simply, but there was a note of sadness in her voice. How came you here, Thavia I asked. And where is Tars Tarkas the great Thark, I fear, is dead, she replied sadly. He was a mighty fighter but a multitude of green warriors of another horde than his overwhelmed him. The last that I saw of him they were bearing him, wounded and bleeding, to the deserted city from which they had sallied to attack us. You are not sure that he is dead, then I asked. And where is this city of which you speak it is just beyond this range of hills? The vessel in which you so nobly resigned a place that we might find escape defied our small skill in navigation, with the result that we drifted aimlessly about for two days. Then we decided to abandon the craft and attempt to make our way on foot to the nearest waterway. Yesterday we crossed these hills and came upon the dead city beyond. We had passed within its streets and were walking toward the central portion when at an intersecting avenue we saw a body of green warriors approaching. Tars Tarkas was in advance, and they saw him, but me they did not see. The Thark sprang back to my side and forced me into an adjacent doorway, where he told me to remain in hiding until I could escape, making my way to Helium if possible. There will be no escape for me now, he said, for these be the Warhoon of the South. When they have seen my metal it will be to the death. Then he stepped out to meet them. Ah, my prince, such fighting for an hour they swarmed about him, until the Warhoon dead formed a hill where he had stood. But at last they overwhelmed him, those behind pushing the foremost upon him until there remained no space to swing his great sword. Then he stumbled and went down and they rolled over him like a huge wave. When they carried him away toward the heart of the city, he was dead, I think, for I did not see him move. Before we go farther we must be sure, I said. I cannot leave Tars Tarkas alive among the Warhoons. Tonight I shall enter the city and make sure. And I shall go with you, spoke Kartoris. And I, 
said Xadar. Neither one of you shall go, I replied. It is work that requires stealth and strategy, not force. One man alone may succeed where more would invite disaster. I shall go alone. If I need your help, I will return for you. They did not like it, but both were good soldiers, and it had been agreed that I should command. The sun already was low, so that I did not have long to wait before the sudden darkness of Barsoom engulfed us. With a parting word of instructions to Kartoris and Xadar, in case I should not return, I bade them all farewell and set forth at a rapid dog trot toward the city. As I emerged from the hills the nearer moon was winging its wild flight through the heavens, its bright beams turning to burnished silver the barbaric splendor of the ancient metropolis. The city had been built upon the gently rolling foothills that in the dim and distant past had sloped down to meet the sea. It was due to this fact that I had no difficulty in entering the streets unobserved. The green hordes that use these deserted cities seldom occupy more than a few squares about the central plaza, and as they come and go always across the dead sea bottoms that the cities face, it is usually a matter of comparative ease to enter from the hillside. Once within the streets, I kept close in the dense shadows of the walls. At intersections I halted a moment to make sure that none was in sight before I sprang quickly to the shadows of the opposite side. Thus I made the journey to the vicinity of the plaza without detection. As I approached the purlieus of the inhabited portion of the city I was made aware of the proximity of the warriors' quarters by the squealing and grunting of the thoats and zetiders corralled within the hollow courtyards formed by the buildings surrounding each square. These old familiar sounds that are so distinctive of green Martian life sent a thrill of pleasure surging through me. It was as one might feel on coming home after a long absence. It was amid such sounds that I had first courted the incomparable Dacia Taurus in the age-old marble halls of the dead city of Corade. As I stood in the shadows at the far corner of the first square which housed members of the Horde, I saw warriors emerging from several of the buildings. They all went in the same direction, toward a great building which stood in the center of the plaza. My knowledge of green Martian customs convinced me that this was either the quarters of the principal chieftain or contained the audience chamber wherein the Jed had met his Jeds and lesser chieftains. In either event, it was evident that something was afoot which might have a bearing on the recent capture of Tars Tarkas. To reach this building, which I now felt it imperative that I do, I must needs traverse the entire length of one square and cross a broad avenue and a portion of the plaza. From the noises of the animals which came from every courtyard about me, I knew that there were many people in the surrounding buildings probably several communities of the great horde of the Warhoons of the South. To pass undetected among all these people was in itself a difficult task. But if I was to find and rescue the great Thark I must expect even more formidable obstacles before success could be mine. I had entered the city from the south and now stood on the corner of the avenue through which I had passed and the first intersecting avenue south of the plaza. The buildings upon the south side of the square did not appear to be inhabited, 
as I could see no lights, and so I decided to gain the inner courtyard through one of them. Nothing occurred to interrupt my progress through the deserted pile I chose, and I came into the inner court close to the rear walls of the east buildings without detection. Within the court a great herd of thoughts and Zetidus moved restlessly about, cropping the moss-like oak of vegetation which overgrows practically the entire uncultivated area of Mars. What breeze there was came from the northwest, so there was little danger that the beasts would send me. Had they, their squealing and grunting would have grown to such a volume as to attract the attention of the warriors within the buildings. Close to the east wall, beneath the overhanging balconies of the second floors, I crept in dense shadows the full length of the courtyard, until I came to the buildings at the north end. These were lighted for about three floors up, but above the third floor all was dark. To pass through the lighted rooms was, of course, out of the question, since they swarmed with green Martian men and women. My only path lay through the upper floors, and to gain these it was necessary to scale the face of the wall. The reaching of the balcony of the second floor was a matter of easy accomplishment an agile leap gave my hands a grasp upon the stone handrail above. In another instant I had drawn myself upon the balcony. Here through the open windows I saw the green folk squatting upon their sleeping silks and furs, grunting an occasional monosyllable, which, in connection with their wondrous telepathic powers, is ample for their conversational requirements. As I drew closer to listen to their words a warrior entered the room from the hall beyond. Come, Tangama, he cried, we are to take the Thark before Cab Cager. Bring another with you. The warrior addressed to Rouse and, beckoning to a fellow squatting near, the three turned and left the apartment. If I could but follow them the chance might come to free Tars Tarkas at once. At least I would learn the location of his prison. At my right was a door leading from the balcony into the building. It was at the end of an unlighted hall, and on the impulse of the moment I stepped within. The hall was broad and led straight through to the front of the building. On either side were the doorways of the various apartments which lined it. I had no more than entered the corridor than I saw the three warriors at the other end those whom I had just seen leaving the apartment. Then a turn to the right took them from my sight again. Quickly I hastened along the hallway in pursuit. My gait was reckless, but I felt that fate had been kind indeed to throw such an opportunity within my grasp, and I could not afford to allow it to elude me now. At the far end of the corridor I found a spiral stairway leading to the floors above and below. The three had evidently left the floor by this avenue. That they had gone down and not up I was sure from my knowledge of these ancient buildings and the methods of the Warhoons. I myself had once been a prisoner of the cruel hordes of Northern Warhoon, and the memory of the underground dungeon in which I lay still is vivid in my memory. And so I felt certain that Tars Tarkas lay in the dark pits beneath some nearby building, and that in the direction I should find the trail of the three warriors leading to his cell. Nor was I wrong. At the bottom of the runway, or rather at the landing on the floor below, I saw that the shaft descended into the pits beneath.
and as I glanced down the flickering light of a torch revealed the presence of the three I was trailing. Down they went toward the pits beneath the structure, and at a safe distance behind I followed the flicker of their torch. The way led through a maze of tortuous corridors, unlighted save for the wavering light they carried. We had gone perhaps a hundred yards when the party turned abruptly through a doorway at their right. I hastened on as rapidly as I dared through the darkness until I reached the point at which they had left the corridor. There, through an open door, I saw them removing the chains that secured the great Thark, Tars Tarkas, to the wall. Hustling him roughly between them, they came immediately from their chamber, so quickly in fact that I was near to being apprehended. But I managed to run along the corridor in the direction I had been going in my pursuit of them far enough to be without the radius of their meager light as they emerged from the cell. I had naturally assumed that they would return with Tars Tarkas the same way that they had come, which would have carried them away from me. But, to my chagrin, they wheeled directly in my direction as they left the room. There was nothing for me but to hasten on in advance and keep out of the light of their torch. I dared not attempt to halt in the darkness of any of the many intersecting corridors, for I knew nothing of the direction they might take. Chance was as likely as not to carry me into the very corridor they might choose to enter. The sensation of moving rapidly through these dark passages was far from reassuring. I knew not at what moment I might plunge headlong into some terrible pit or meet with some of the ghoulish creatures that inhabit these lower worlds beneath the dead cities of dying Mars. There filtered to me a faint radiance from the torch of the men behind just enough to permit me to trace the direction of the winding passageways directly before me, and so keep me from dashing myself against the walls at the turns. Presently I came to a place where five corridors diverged from our common point. I had hastened along one of them for some little distance when suddenly the faint light of the torch disappeared from behind me. I paused to listen for sounds of the party behind me, but the silence was as utter as the silence of the tomb. Quickly I realized that the warriors had taken one of the other corridors with their prisoner and so I hastened back with a feeling of considerable relief to take up a much safer and more desirable position behind them. It was much slower work returning, however, than it had been coming, for now the darkness was as utter as the silence. It was necessary to feel every foot of the way back with my hand against the side wall, that I might not pass the spot where the five roads radiated. After what seemed an eternity to me, I reached the place and recognized it by groping across the entrances to the several corridors until I had counted five of them. In not one, however, showed the faintest sign of light. I listened intently, but the naked feet of the green men sent back no guiding echoes, though presently I thought I detected the clank of sidearms in the far distance of the middle corridor. Up this, then, I hastened searching for the light, and stopping to listen occasionally for a repetition of the sound. But soon I was forced to admit that I must have been following a blind lead, as only darkness and silence rewarded my efforts. 
Again I retraced my steps toward the parting of the ways, when to my surprise I came upon the entrance to three diverging corridors, any one of which I might have traversed in my hasty dash after the false clue I had been following. Here was a pretty fix, indeed once back at the point where the five passageways met, I might wait with some assurance for the return of the warriors with Tars Tarkas. My knowledge of their customs lent color to the belief that he was but being escorted to the audience chamber to have sentence passed upon him. I had not the slightest doubt but that they would preserve so doughty a warrior as the great Thark for the rare sport he would furnish at the great games. But unless I could find my way back to that point the chances were most excellent that I would wander for days through the awful blackness, until, overcome by thirst and hunger, I lay down to die, or what was that a faint shuffling sounded behind me, and as I cast a hasty glance over my shoulder my blood fouls in my veins for the thing I saw there. It was not so much fear of the present danger as it was the horrifying memories it recalled of the time I near went mad over the corpse of the man I had killed in the dungeons of the Warhoons, when blazing eyes came out of the dark recesses and dragged the thing that had been a man from my clutches and I heard it scraping over the stone of my prison as they bore it away to their terrible feast. And now in these black pits of the other warhoons I looked into those same fiery eyes, blazing at me through the terrible darkness, revealing no sign of the beast behind them. I think that the most fearsome attribute of these awesome creatures is their silence and the fact that one never sees them nothing but those baleful eyes glaring unblinkingly out of the dark void behind. Grasping my long sword tightly in my hand, I backed slowly along the corridor away from the thing that watched me, but ever as I retreated the eyes advanced, nor was there any sound, not even the sound of breathing, except the occasional shuffling sound as of the dragging of a dead limb, that had first attracted my attention. On and on I went, but I could not escape my sinister pursuer. Suddenly I heard the shuffling noise at my right, and, looking, saw another pair of eyes, evidently approaching from an intersecting corridor. As I started to renew my slow retreat I heard the noise repeated behind me, and then before I could turn I heard it again at my left. The things were all about me. They had me surrounded at the intersection of two corridors. Retreat was cut off in all directions, unless I chose to charge one of the beasts. Even then I had no doubt but that the others would hurl themselves upon my back. I could not even guess the size or nature of the weird creatures. That they were of goodly proportions I guessed from the fact that the eyes were on a level with my own. Why is it that darkness so magnifies our dangers by day I would have charged the great Benth itself, had I thought it necessary? but hemmed in by the darkness of these silent pits I hesitated before a pair of eyes. Soon I saw that the matter shortly would be taken entirely from my hands, for the eyes at my right were moving slowly nearer me, as were those at my left and those behind and before me. Gradually they were closing in upon me but still that awful stealthy silence for what seemed hours the eyes approached gradually closer and closer until I felt that I should go mad for the horror of it. 
I had been constantly turning this way and that to prevent any sudden rush from behind, until I was fairly worn out. At length I could endure it no longer, and, taking a fresh grasp upon my long sword, I turned suddenly and charged down upon one of my tormentors. As I was almost upon it the thing retreated before me, but a sound from behind caused me to wheel in time to see three pairs of eyes rushing at me from the rear. With a cry of rage I turned to meet the cowardly beasts, but as I advanced they retreated as hid their fellow. Another glance over my shoulder discovered the first eyes sneaking on me again. And again I charged, only to see the eyes retreat before me and hear the muffled rush of the three at my back. Thus we continued the eyes always a little closer in the end than they had been before, until I thought that I should go mad with the terrible strain of the ordeal. That they were waiting to spring upon my back seemed evident, and that it would not be long before they succeeded was equally apparent, for I could not endure the wear of this repeated charge and counter-charge indefinitely. In fact, I could feel myself weakening from the mental and physical strain I had been undergoing. At that moment I caught another glimpse from the corner of my eye of the single pair of eyes at my back making a sudden rush upon me. I turned to meet the charge. There was a quick rush of the three from the other direction. But I determined to pursue the single pair until I should have at least settled my account with one of the beasts and thus be relieved of the strain of meeting attacks from both directions. There was no sound in the corridor only that of my own breathing, yet I knew that those three uncanny creatures were almost upon me. The eyes in front were not retreating so rapidly now. I was almost within sword reach of them. I raised my sword arm to deal the blow that should free me, and then I felt a heavy body upon my back. A cold, moist, slimy something fastened itself upon my throat. I stumbled and went down. Chapter 15. Flight and Pursuit. I could not have been unconscious more than a few seconds, and yet I know that I was unconscious, for the next thing I realized was that a growing radiance was illuminating the corridor about me and the eyes were gone. I was unharmed except for a slight bruise upon my forehead where it had struck the stone flagging as I fell. I sprang to my feet to ascertain the cause of the light. It came from a torch in the hand of one of a party of four green warriors, who were coming rapidly down the corridor toward me. They had not yet seen me, and so I lost no time in slipping into the first intersecting corridor that I could find. This time, however, I did not advance so far away from the main corridor as on the other occasion that had resulted in my losing Tars Tarkas and his guards. The party came rapidly toward the opening of the passageway in which I crouched against the wall. As they passed by I breathed a sigh of relief. I had not been discovered, and, best of all, the party was the same that I had followed into the pits. It consisted of Tars Tarkas and his three guards. I fell in behind them and soon we were at the cell in which the great Thark had been chained. Two of the warriors remained without while the man with the keys entered with the Thark to fasten his irons upon him once more. 
The two outside started to stroll slowly in the direction of the spiral runway which led to the floors above, and in a moment were lost to view beyond a turn in the corridor. The torch had been stuck in a socket beside the door, so that its rays illuminated both the corridor and the cell at the same time. As I saw the two warriors disappear I approached the entrance to the cell, with a well-defined plan already formulated. While I disliked the thought of carrying out the thing that I had decided upon, there seemed no alternative if Tars Tarkas and I were to go back together to my little camp in the hills. Keeping near the wall, I came quite close to the door to Tars Tarkas' cell, and there I stood with my long sword above my head, grasped with both hands, that I might bring it down in one quick cut upon the skull of the jailer as he emerged. I dislike to dwell upon what followed after I heard the footsteps of the man as he approached the doorway. It is enough that within another minute or two, Tars Tarkas, wearing the metal of a Warhoon chief, was hurrying down the corridor toward the spiral runway, bearing the Warhoon's torch to light his way. A dozen paces behind him followed John Carter, Prince of Helium. The two companions of the man who lay now beside the door of the cell that had been Tars Tarkas had just started to ascend the runway as the Thark came in view. Why so long, Tangama cried one of the men. I had trouble with the lock, replied Tars Tarkas. And now I find that I have left my short sword in the Thark's cell. Go you on, I'll return and fetch it. As you will, Tangama replied he who had before spoken. We shall see you above directly. Yes, replied Tars Tarkas, and turned as though to retrace his steps to the cell, but he only waited until the two had disappeared at the floor above. Then I joined him, we extinguished the torch, and together we crept toward the spiral incline that led to the upper floors of the building. At the first floor we found that the hallway ran but halfway through, necessitating the crossing of a rear room full of green folk, ere we could reach the inner courtyard, so there was but one thing left for us to do, and that was to gain the second floor and the hallway through which I had traversed the length of the building. Cautiously we ascended. We could hear the sounds of conversation coming from the room above, but the hall still was unlighted, nor was anyone in sight as we gained the top of the runway. Together we threaded the long hall and reached the balcony overlooking the courtyard, without being detected. At our right was the window letting into the room in which I had seen Tangama and the other warriors as they started to Tars Tarkas cell earlier in the evening. His companions had returned here, and we now overheard a portion of their conversation. What can be detaining Tangama asked one. He certainly could not be all this time fetching his short sword from the Thark's cell, spoke another. His short sword asked a woman. What mean you Tangama left his short sword in the Thark's cell, explained the first speaker, and left us at the runway, to return and get it. Tangama wore no short sword this night, said the woman. It was broken in today's battle with the Thark, and Tangama gave it to me to repair. See, I have it here, and as she spoke she drew Tangama's short sword from beneath her sleeping silks and furs. The warriors sprang to their feet. 
there is something amiss here, cried one. Tis even what I myself thought when Tangama left us at the runway, said another. Methought then that his voice sounded strangely. Come let us hasten to the pits. We waited to hear no more. Slinging my harness into a long single strap, I lowered Tars Tarkas to the courtyard beneath, and an instant later dropped to his side. We had spoken scarcely a dozen words since I had felled Tangama at the cell door and seen in the torches light the expression of utter bewilderment upon the great Thark's face. By this time, he had said, I should have learned to wonder at nothing which John Carter accomplishes. That was all. He did not need to tell me that he appreciated the friendship which had prompted me to risk my life to rescue him nor did he need to say that he was glad to see me. This fierce green warrior had been the first to greet me the day, now twenty years gone, which had witnessed my first advent upon Mars. He had met me with leveled spear and cruel hatred in his heart as he charged down upon me, bending low at the side of his mighty thought as I stood beside the incubator of his hall upon the Dead Sea bottom beyond Corade. And now among the inhabitants of two worlds I counted none a better friend than Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of the Tharks. As we reached the courtyard we stood in the shadows beneath the balcony for a moment to discuss our plans. There be five now in the party, Tars Tarkas, I said. Thavia, Xadao, Kartorisk, and ourselves. We shall need five thoughts to bear us. Kartoris, he cried. Your son, yes. I found him in the prison of Shador, on the Sea of Amin, in the land of the firstborn. I know not any of these places, John Carter. Be they upon Barsoom upon and below, my friend. But wait until we shall have made good our escape, and you shall hear the strangest narrative that ever a Barsoomian of the outer world gave ear to. Now we must steal our thoughts and be well away to the north before these fellows discover how we have tricked them. In safety we reached the great gates at the far end of the courtyard, through which it was necessary to take our thoughts to the avenue beyond. It is no easy matter to handle five of these great, fierce beasts, which by nature are as wild and ferocious as their masters and held in subjection by cruelty and brute force alone. As we approached them they sniffed our unfamiliar scent and with squeals of rage circled about us. Their long, massive necks upread raised their great, gaping mouths high above our heads. They are fearsome appearing brutes at best, but when they are aroused they are fully as dangerous as they look. The thoat stands a good ten feet at the shoulder. His hide is sleek and hairless, and of a dark slate color on back and sides shading down his eight legs to a vivid yellow at the huge, padded, nailless feet. The belly is pure white. A broad, flat tail, larger at the tip than at the root, completes the picture of this ferocious green Martian Mount Dash a fit war steed for these warlike people. As the thoughts are guided by telepathic means alone, there is no need for rein or bridle and so our object now was to find two that would obey our unspoken commands. As they charged about us we succeeded in mastering them sufficiently to prevent any concerted attack upon us, 
but the din of their squealing was certain to bring investigating warriors into the courtyard were it to continue much longer. At length I was successful in reaching the side of one great brute, and ere he knew what I was about I was firmly seated astride his glossy back. A moment later Tars Tarkas had caught and mounted another, and then between us we herded three or four more toward the great gates. Tars Tarkas rode ahead and, leaning down to the latch, threw the barriers open, while I held the loose thoats from breaking back to the herd. Then together we rode through into the avenue with our stolen mounts and, without waiting to close the gates, hurried off toward the southern boundary of the city. Thus far our escape had been little short of marvellous, nor did our good fortune desert us, for we passed the outer purlieus of the dead city and came to our camp without hearing even the faintest sound of pursuit. Here a low whistle, the prearranged signal, apprised the balance of our party that I was returning, and we were met by the three with every manifestation of enthusiastic rejoicing. But little time was wasted in narration of our adventure. Tars Tarkas and Kartoris exchanged the dignified and formal greetings common upon Barsoom, but I could tell intuitively that the Thark loved my boy and that Kartoris reciprocated his affection. Xadar and the Green Jeddak were formally presented to each other. Then Favia was lifted to the least fractious thought. Xadar and Kartoris mounted two others and we set out at a rapid pace toward the east. At the far extremity of the city we circled toward the north, and under the glorious rays of the two moons we sped noiselessly across the Dead Sea bottom, away from the war hoons and the firstborn, but to what new dangers and adventures we knew not. Toward noon of the following day we halted to rest our mounts and ourselves. The beasts we hobbled, that they might move slowly about cropping the oakamoss-like vegetation which constitutes both food and drink for them on the march. Thavia volunteered to remain on watch while the balance of the party slept for an hour. It seemed to me that I had but closed my eyes when I felt her hand upon my shoulder and heard her soft voice warning me of a new danger. Arise, O Prince, she whispered. There be that behind us which has the appearance of a great body of pursuers. The girl stood pointing in the direction from whence we had come, and as I arose and looked, I, too, thought that I could detect a thin dark line on the far horizon. I awoke the others. Tars Tarkas, whose giant stature towered high above the rest of us, could see the farthest. It is a great body of mounted men, he said and they are travelling at high speed. There was no time to be lost. We sprang to our hobbled thoats, freed them, and mounted. Then we turned our faces once more toward the north and took our flight again at the highest speed of our slowest beast. For the balance of the day and all the following night we raced across that oka wilderness with the pursuers at our back ever gaining upon us. Slowly but surely they were lessening the distance between us. Just before dark they had been close enough for us to plainly distinguish that they were green Martians, and all during the long night we distinctly heard the clanking of their accoutrements behind us. As the sun rose on the second day of our flight it disclosed the pursuing horde not a half mile in our rear.
as they saw Zafindish shout of triumph fouls from their ranks. Several miles in advance lay a range of hills the farther shore of the Dead Sea we had been crossing. Could we but reach these hills our chances of escape would be greatly enhanced, but Thavia's mount, although carrying the lightest burden, already was showing signs of exhaustion. I was riding beside her when suddenly her animal staggered and lurched against mine. I saw that he was going down, but ere he fell I snatched the girl from his back and swung her to a place upon my own foot, behind me, where she clung with her arms about me. This double burden soon proved too much for my already overtaxed beast, and thus our speed was terribly diminished, for the others would proceed no faster than the slowest of us could go. In that little party there was not one who would desert another. Yet we were of different countries, different colors, different races, different religions and one of us was of a different world. We were quite close to the hills, but the Wahoons were gaining so rapidly that we had given up all hope of reaching them in time. Thavia and I were in the rear, for our beast was lagging more and more. Suddenly I felt the girl's warm lips press a kiss upon my shoulder. For thy sake, O oh my prince, she murmured. Then her arms slipped from about my waist and she was gone. I turned and saw that she had deliberately slipped to the ground in the very path of the cruel demons who pursued us, thinking that by lightening the burden of my mount it might thus be enabled to bear me to the safety of the hills. Poor child she should have known John Carter better than that. Turning my foot, I urged him after her, hoping to reach her side and bear her on again in our hopeless flight. Cartoris must have glanced behind him at about the same time and taken in the situation, for by the time I had reached Thavia's side he was there also, and, springing from his mount, he threw her upon its back and, turning the animal's head toward the hills, gave the beast a sharp crack across the rump with the flat of his sword. Then he attempted to do the same with mine. The brave boy's act of chivalrous self-sacrifice filled me with pride, nor did I care that it had wrested from us our last frail chance for escape. The Warhoons were now close upon us. Tars Tarkas and Xadar had discovered our absence and were charging rapidly to our support. Everything pointed toward a splendid ending of my second journey to Basum. I hated to go out without having seen my divine princess and held her in my arms once again. But if it were not writ upon the book of fate that such was to be, then would I take the most that was coming to me, and in these last few moments that were to be vouchsafed me before I passed over into that unguessed future I could at least give such an account of myself in my chosen vocation as would leave the Warhoons of the South food for discourse for the next twenty generations. As Cartoris was not mounted, I slipped from the back of my own mount and took my place at his side to meet the charge of the howling devils bearing down upon us. A moment later Tars Tarkas and Xadar ranged themselves on either hand, turning their thoughts loose that we might all be on an equal footing. The Warhoons were perhaps a hundred yards from us when a loud explosion sounded from above and behind us and almost at the same instant a shell burst in their advancing ranks. At once all was confusion, 
a hundred warriors toppled to the ground. Riderless thoughts plunged hither and thither among the dead and dying. Dismounted warriors were trampled underfoot in the stampede which followed. All semblance of order had left the ranks of the green men, and as they looked far above our heads to trace the origin of this unexpected attack, disorder turned to retreat and retreat to a wild panic. In another moment they were racing as madly away from us as they had before been charging down upon us. We turned to look in the direction from whence the first report had come, and there we saw, just clearing the tops of the nearer hills, a great battleship swinging majestically through the air. Her bow gum spoke again even as we looked, and another shell burst among the fleeing war hoons. As she drew nearer I could not repress a wild cry of elation, for upon her bows I saw the device of helium. Chapter 16 Under Arrest As Kartoris, Xadao, Tars Tarkas, and I stood gazing at the magnificent vessel which meant so much to all of us, we saw a second and then a third top the summit of the hills and glide gracefully after their sister. Now a score of one-man air scouts were launching from the upper decks of the nearer vessel, and in a moment more were speeding in long, swift dives to the ground about us. In another instant we were surrounded by armed sailors, and an officer had stepped forward to address us, when his eyes fell upon Cartoris. With an exclamation of surprised pleasure he sprang forward, and, placing his hands upon the boy's shoulder, called him by name. Cartoris, my prince, he cried, Caecae Horvistus Cretes the son of Dejah Torris, princess of Helium, and of her husband, John Carter. Where have you been, O oh my prince all Helium has been plunged in sorrow. Terrible have been the calamities that have befallen your great-grandsire's mighty nation since the fatal day that saw you leave our midst. Grieve not, my good Horvestus, cried Cartoris, since I bring not back myself alone to cheer my mother's heart and the hearts of my beloved people, but also one whom all Barsoom loved best her greatest warrior and her saviour John Carter, Prince of Helium Horvestus turned in the direction indicated by Cartoris, and as his eyes fell upon me he was like to have collapsed from sheer surprise. John Carter he exclaimed, and then a sudden troubled look came into his eyes. My prince, he started, where hast thou and then he stopped, but I knew the question that his lips dared not frame. The loyal fellow would not be the one to force from mine a confession of the terrible truth that I had returned from the bosom of the ice, the river of mystery, back from the shore of the lost sea of Carus, and the valley door. Ah, my prince, he continued as though no thought had interrupted his greeting, that you are back is sufficient, and let Horvish's sword have the high honour of being first at thy feet. With these words the noble fellow unbuckled his scabbard and flung his sword upon the ground before me. Could you know the customs and the character of Red Martians you would appreciate the depth of meaning that that simple act conveyed to me and to all about us who witnessed it. The thing was equivalent to saying, my sword, my body, my life, my soul are yours to do with as you wish. Until death and after death I look to you alone for authority for my every act. Be you right or wrong, 
your word shall be my only truth. Whoso raises his hand against you must answer to my sword. It is the oath of fealty that men occasionally pay to a Jeddak whose high character and chivalrous acts have inspired the enthusiastic love of his followers. Never had I known this high tribute paid to a lesser mortal. There was but one response possible. I stooped and lifted the sword from the ground, raised the hilt to my lips, and then, stepping to Horvistus, I buckled the weapon upon him with my own hands. Horvistus, I said, placing my hand upon his shoulder, you know best the promptings of your own heart. That I shall need your sword I have little doubt, but accept from John Carter upon his sacred honor the assurance that he will never call upon you to draw this sword other than in the cause of truth, justice, and righteousness. That I knew, my prince, he replied, ere ever I threw my beloved blade at thy feet. As we spoke other flyers came and went between the ground and the battleship, and presently a larger boat was launched from above, one capable of carrying a dozen persons, perhaps, and dropped lightly near us. As she touched, an officer sprang from her deck to the ground, and, advancing to Horvistus, saluted. Kantoskin desires that this party whom we have rescued be brought immediately to the deck of the Xaverian he said. As we approached the little craft I looked about for the members of my party and for the first time noticed that Thavia was not among them. Questioning elicited the fact that none had seen her since Cartoris had sent her thought galloping madly toward the hills, in the hope of carrying her out of harm's way. Immediately Horvistus dispatched a dozen air scouts in as many directions to search for her. It could not be possible that she had gone far since we had last seen her. We others stepped to the deck of the craft that had been sent to fetch us, and a moment later were upon the Xaverian. The first man to greet me was Kantoskin himself. My old friend had won to the highest place in the navy of Helium, but he was still to me the same brave comrade who had shared with me the privations of a Warhoom dungeon the terrible atrocities of the great games, and later the dangers of our search for Deja Taurus within the hostile city of Zodanga. Then I had been an unknown wanderer upon a strange planet, and he a simple pad war in the navy of Helium. Today he commanded all Helium's great terrors of the skies, and I was a prince of the house of Tarduzmas, Jeddak of Helium. He did not ask me where I had been. Like Horvestus, he too dreaded the truth and would not be the one to wrest a statement from me. That it must come some time he well knew, but until it came he seemed satisfied to but know that I was with him once more. He greeted Kartoris and Tars Tarkas with the keenest delight, but he asked neither where he had been. He could scarcely keep his hands off the boy. You do not know, John Carter, he said to me. How we of Helium love this son of yours. It is as though all the great love we bore his noble father and his poor mother had been centered in him. When it became known that he was lost, ten million people wept. What mean you, Kamtoskin, I whispered, by his poor mother for the words had seemed to carry a sinister meaning which I could not fathom. He drew me to one side. For a year, he said. Ever since Cartoris disappeared, 
Deja Torres has grieved and mourned for her lost boy. The blow of years ago, when you did not return from the atmosphere plant, was lessened to some extent by the duties of motherhood, for your son broke his white shell that very night. That she suffered terribly then, all Helium knew, for did not all Helium suffer with her the loss of her lord but with the boy gone there was nothing left, and after expedition upon expedition returned with the same hopeless tale of no clue as to his whereabouts, our beloved princess drooped lower and lower, until all who saw her felt that it could be but a matter of days ere she went to join her loved ones within the precincts of the valley door. As a last resort, Muskayake, her father, and Tarduzmas, her grandfather, took command of two mighty expeditions, and a month ago sailed away to explore every inch of ground in the northern hemisphere of Barsoom. For two weeks no word has come back from them, but rumors were rife that they had met with a terrible disaster and that all were dead. About this time Z.A.T. Aris renewed his importunities for her hand in marriage. He has been forever after her since you disappeared. She hated him and feared him, but with both her father and grandfather gone, Z.A.T. Aris was very powerful, for he is still Jed of Zodanga, to which position, you will remember, Tarduzmas appointed him after you had refused the honor. He had a secret audience with her six days ago. What took place none knows, but the next day Deja Torres had disappeared, and with her had gone a dozen of her household guard and body servants, including Sola the green woman Tars Tarkas' daughter, you recall. No word left they of their intentions, but it is always thus with those who go upon the voluntary pilgrimage from which none returns. We cannot think aught than that Deja Torres has sought the icy bosom of ice and that her devoted servants have chosen to accompany her. Z.A.T. Aris was at Helium when she disappeared. He commands this fleet which has been searching for her since. No trace of her have we found, and I fear that it be a futile quest. While we talked, Horvish's flyers were returning to the Xavarian. Not one, however, had discovered a trace of Thavia. I was much depressed over the news of Deja Torres' disappearance, and now there was added the further burden of apprehension concerning the fate of this girl whom I believed to be the daughter of some proud Barsoomian house, and it had been my intention to make every effort to return her to her people. I was about to ask Kuntoskin to prosecute a further search for her when a flyer from the flagship of the fleet arrived at the Xavarian with an officer bearing a message to Kuntoskin from Arras. My friend read the dispatch and then turned to me. Z.A.T. Arras commands me to bring our prisoners before him. There is naught else to do. He is supreme in helium yet it would be far more in keeping with chivalry and good taste were he to come hither and greet the saviour of Barsoom with the honours that are his due. You know full well, my friend, I said, smiling, that Z.A.T. Aris has good cause to hate me. Nothing would please him better than to humiliate me and then to kill me. Now that he has so excellent an excuse, let us go and see if he has the courage to take advantage of it. Summoning Kartoris, Tars Tarkas, Anxadar, 
we entered the small flyer with Kuntoskan and ZAT Aris officer, and in a moment were stepping to the deck of ZAT Aris flagship. As we approached the jet of Zodanga no sign of greeting or recognition crossed his face. Not even to Kartoris did he vouchsafe a friendly word. His attitude was cold, haughty, and uncompromising. Kea, Z.A.T. Aris, I said in greeting, but he did not respond. Why were these prisoners not disarmed he asked to Kumtozkan. They are not prisoners, Z.A.T. Aris, replied the officer. Two of them are of Helium's noblest family. Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark, is Tarduzma's best beloved ally. The other is a friend and companion of the Prince of Helium that enough for me to know. It is not enough for me, however, retorted Z.A.T. Arras. More must I hear from those who have taken the pilgrimage than their names. Where have you been, John Carter? I have just come from the Valley Door and the Land of the Firstborn, Z.A.T. Arras, I replied. Ah, he exclaimed in evident pleasure, you do not deny it. Then you have returned from the bosom of ice I have come back from a land of false hope, from a valley of torture and death. With my companions I have escaped from the hideous clutches of lying fiends. I have come back to the Barsoom that I saved from a painless death to again save her, but this time from death in its most frightful form. Cease, blasphemer cried Z.A.T. Arras. Hope not to save thy cowardly carcass by inventing horrid lies to but he got no further. One does not call John Carter coward and liar thus lightly, and Z.A.T. Arras should have known it. Before a hand could be raised to stop me, I was at his side and one hand grasped his throat. Come I from heaven or hell, Z.A.T. Arras, you will find me still the same John Carter that I have always been. Nor did ever man call me such names and live without apologizing. And with that I commenced to bend him back across my knee and tighten my grip upon his throat. Seize him cried Z.A.T. Arras, and a dozen officers sprang forward to assist him. Kantoskin came close and whispered to me. Desist, I beg of you. It will but involve us all for I cannot see these men lay hands upon you without aiding you. My officers and men will join me and we shall have a mutiny then that may lead to the revolution. For the sake of Tartusmas and Helium, desist. At his words I released Z.A.T. Arras and, turning my back upon him, walked toward the ship's rail. Come, Kantoskin, I said, the Prince of Helium would return to the Xavarian. None interfered. Z.A.T. Arras stood white and trembling amidst his officers. Some there were who looked upon him with scorn and drew toward me, while one, a man long in the service and confidence of Tarduzmas, spoke to me in a low tone as I passed him. You may count my metal among your fighting men, John Carter, he said. I thanked him and passed on. In silence we embarked and shortly after stepped once more upon the deck of the Xavarian. Fifteen minutes later we received orders from the flagship to proceed toward Helium. Our journey thither was uneventful. Cartoris and I were wrapped in the gloomiest of thoughts. 
Kantos Ken was sombering contemplation of the further calamity that might fall upon Helium should Z.A.T. Aris attempt to follow the age-old precedent that allotted a terrible death to fugitives from the Valley Door. Tars Tarkas grieved for the loss of his daughter. Xadar alone was carefree a fugitive and outlaw, he could be no worse off in Helium than elsewhere. Let us hope that we may at least go out with good red blood upon our blades, he said. It was a simple wish and one most likely to be gratified. Among the officers of the Xavarian I thought I could discern a vision into factions ere we had reached Helium. There were those who gathered about Cartoris and myself whenever the opportunity presented, while about an equal number held aloof from us. They offered us only the most courteous treatment, but were evidently bound by their superstitious belief in the doctrine of Dord and Isenkirus. I could not blame them, for I knew how strong a hold a creed, however ridiculous it may be, may gain upon an otherwise intelligent people. By returning from Dor we had committed a sacrilege. By recounting our adventures there, and stating the facts as they existed we had outraged the religion of their fathers. We were blasphemers lying heretics. Even those who still clung to us from personal love and loyalty I think did so in the face of the fact that at heart they questioned our veracity it is very hard to accept a new religion for an old, no matter how alluring the promises of the new may be but to reject the old as a tissue of falsehoods without being offered anything in its stead is indeed the most difficult thing to ask of any people. Kantoskan would not talk of our experiences among the Thans and the Firstborn. It is enough, he said, that I jeopardized my life here and hereafter by countenancing you at all do not ask me to add still further to my sins by listening to what I have always been taught was the rankest heresy. I knew that sooner or later the time must come when our friends and enemies would be forced to declare themselves openly. When we reached Helium there must be an accounting, and if Tardushmas had not returned I feared that the enmity of Z.A.T. Aras might weigh heavily against us, for he represented the government of Helium. To take sides against him were equivalent to treason. The majority of the troops would doubtless follow the lead of their officers, and I knew that many of the highest and most powerful men of both land and air forces would cleave to John Carter in the face of God, man, or devil. On the other hand, the majority of the populace unquestionably would demand that we pay the penalty of our sacrilege. The outlook seemed dark from whatever angle I viewed it, but my mind was so torn with anguish at the thought of Deja Taurus that I realized now that I gave the terrible question of Helium's plight but scant attention at that time. There was always before me, day and night a horrible nightmare of the frightful scenes through which I knew my princess might even then be passing the horrid plant men the ferocious white apes. At times I would cover my face with my hands in a vain effort to shut out the fearful thing from my mind. It was in the forenoon that we arrived above the mile-high scarlet tower which marks Greater Helium from her twin city. As we descended in great circles toward the navy docks a mighty multitude could be seen surging in the streets beneath. Helium had been notified by radio aerogram of our approach. 
from the deck of the Xaverian we four, Kartoris, Tars Tarkas, Xadao, and I, were transferred to a lesser flyer to be transported to quarters within the Temple of Reward. It is here that Martian justice is meted to benefactor and malefactor. Here the hero is decorated. Here the felon is condemned. We were taken into the temple from the landing stage upon the roof, so that we did not pass among the people at all, as is customary. Always before I had seen prisoners of note, or returned wanderers of eminence, paraded from the gate of Jeddaks to the Temple of Reward up the broad avenue of ancestors through dense crowds of jeering or cheering citizens. I knew that Z.A.T. Aras dared not trust the people near to us, for he feared that their love for Kartoris and myself might break into a demonstration which would wipe out their superstitious horror of the crime we were to be charged with. What his plans were I could only guess, but that they were sinister was evidenced by the fact that only his most trusted servitors accompanied us upon the flyer to the Temple of Reward. We were lodged in a room upon the south side of the temple, overlooking the avenue of ancestors down which we could see the full length to the gate of Jeddax, five miles away. The people in the temple plaza and in the streets for a distance of a full mile were standing as close packed as it was possible for them to get. They were very orderly there were neither scoffs nor plaudits, and when they saw us at the window above them there were many who buried their faces in their arms and wept. Late in the afternoon a messenger arrived from Z.A.T. Arras to inform us that we would be tried by an impartial body of nobles in the great hall of the temple at the first Zoldastrisk on the following day, or about 8.40 a.m. earth time. Asterisk wherever Captain Carter has used Martian measurements of time, distance, weight, and the like I have translated them into as nearly their equivalent in earthly values as is possible. His notes contain many Martian tables, and a great volume of scientific data, but since the International Astronomic Society is at present engaged in classifying, investigating, and verifying this vast fund of remarkable and valuable information, I have felt that it would add nothing to the interest of Captain Carter's story or to the sum total of human knowledge to maintain a strict adherence to the original manuscript in these matters, while it might readily confuse the reader and detract from the interest of the history. For those who may be interested, however, I will explain that the Martian day is a trifle over 24 hours 37 minutes duration Earth time. This the Martians divide into 10 equal parts, commencing the day at about 6 a.m. Earth time. The Zodes are divided into 50 shorter periods, each of which in turn is composed of 200 brief periods of time, about equivalent to the earthly second. The Barsoomian table of time as here given is but a part of the full table appearing in Captain Carter's notes. Table 200 tools equal 1 XAT 50 XATS equal 1 Zod 10 Zodes equal 1 revolution of Mars upon its axis.